traditional media companies don't hold as much power as they used to. Instead, individual podcasters like you can influence people in such a way. And so when you're actively talking about this, I think that has sort of a grassroots downstream effect where people go, okay, you know, I had heard one thing and now I'm hearing something else from someone I trust. Let me dive deeper into this. And so there's definitely, you know, momentum in that way. My name is Paul Austin and you're listening to the Lifestylist Podcast. Well, folks, you asked and I listened after receiving so many inquiries from listeners who express curiosity about plant medicines and psychedelics. I tracked down our guest, Paul Austin, who is one of the foremost experts in both safety and access. So if you've been feeling uh, left out due to your location, legality or social circles, this episode will no doubt be a very useful one for you in your future exploration. This is episode 400. God, I can't believe it. 400. Thank you so much for helping me make it to number 400, you longtime listeners. It's called Solving the Microdosing Mystery and the Third Wave of Psychedelics. Before we get into this expansion, I'll thank our sponsors, InsideTracker.com, AirDoctorPro.com, and BlueBlocks.com. And uh, the Air Doctor is a new one. You guys might not have heard me talk about that, but you're definitely going to want to look forward to that plug because people like uh, the people that have questions about microdosing and integrating psychedelics, I get the question so often, what is the best air purifier? There's so much competition, so much confusion, so much misleading marketing out there. And Air Doctor is the one I use at home. So I'm excited to share that with you later on. But let's go ahead and learn something about our guest, Paul. Since he first founded Third Wave in 2015, he's dedicated himself to changing the culture and conversation around psychedelics. Inspired by his own early experiences with uh, LSD and psilocybin mushrooms, Paul's personal mission is to help legitimize psychedelic substances through the lens of intentional and responsible use. That's a really important distinction there, especially coming from me as someone who talks about this topic and my own subjective experience and the benefits. Um, I think it's really important to keep that word intentional and responsible in there. Uh, so he says that that's what he's planning to do and is doing, ideally uh, by beginning at the microdose level. So we talk a lot about that. For people that are curious, we got you. He's part social entrepreneur, part psychedelic advocate, uh, and drew his early entrepreneurial experience in online language learning education to launch two ventures in the psychedelic space, Third Wave and Synthesis. We're going to cover a lot today, so you're definitely going to want to check out the show notes, links, and written transcripts for this one. You can find that at lukestory.com slash third wave. Here's a really brief summary of this enlightening and expansive conversation. First, Paul explains the third wave of psychedelics that we're currently experiencing and how it inspired him to start his company. We also talk about the complex legality status of psychedelics in the U.S. and how you can learn from plant medicines without living like a criminal. Paul also gives us the rundown on Third Wave's extensive microdosing guides and courses, which are incredible, by the way, and I think such a great service to humanity. We also cover using legal, ready-made products like Feel Free and Hearthstone Collective's Kana Microdose Capsules as a safe way to explore the benefits of plant medicine. We also answer the question, what dosage, schedule, and type of substances are right for you? and crucial considerations when considering microdosing in combination with psychiatric medications. That part's really important, my friends. Paul also talks about the potential risks and benefits of full journeys compared to microdosing. 
And we cover Paul's extensive directory of clinics and retreat centers and how you can find one for yourself. The new industry of psychedelic coaches that has developed in response to this third wave. How we can support indigenous medicine shaman and their communities. And of course, I couldn't let Paul leave until I asked him his thoughts on psychedelics and sobriety. Before we jump in, I want to invite you to lukestory.com slash microdose, where you can check out Paul's extensive library of microdosing guides. So again, for those of you who have been curious about this realm and can't figure out a safe way to do it, a legal way to do it, his guide and library over there are robust and uh, just very well done. So again, you can find that at lukestory.com slash microdose. We'll of course put all of the links I mentioned in the show notes for this and every episode. And with that, my friends, let's put on our mystical caps and venture into the world of consciousness and psychedelics with Paul Austin. Paul, great to meet you. It's great to meet you. Actually, we met in an event. The Assemblage. Yes, in New York City. Like three years ago now, maybe? Yeah. Three and a half years ago. Was that the Whitma Live or something we were doing? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, it was. That was a great little panel that we had. Yeah, super cool. Yeah, and a fun event. It's funny, at one of those, I don't know if this is the same one at which I met you. Might have been, but I think Brandy from Rhythmia was there. Mm -hmm. And that was before I had ever taken ayahuasca oh. and I was chatting with her about it. Yeah. And during that same trip, I interviewed, um, the medium Paul Selig. Uh-huh. Oh, cool. Yeah. And during, cause Aubrey had introduced me to him and during the, the interview with him, I said, Hey Paul, would you mind if it's appropriate, could you ask the guides if it would be chill for me to go take ayahuasca as someone with, you know, addiction in my past, like sure. in sobriety. And he felt into it and he asked the guides and then the guides spoke and, and said, you, you'll be safe to do that. And it's something that could benefit you. Hmm. And for some reason, I, I just, I believe he is channeling these guides. I mm -hmm. mean, based on the books he writes, there's no editing. Like no one can talk like that. Mm -hmm. Even the most brilliant person or philosopher. Um, so I was like, you know what? I mean, there was a lot that went into it, but yeah, that trip was actually the catalyst that brought us to this conversation. Really? Yeah. Psychedelics. Yeah. And that was the opening for you, like the, yeah, because up until that point, you really hadn't. I had done a lot of psychedelics, but only as a total in buffoonery. Like of, a way to disassociate or yeah, a way to like, sort of party or a way to whatever. Yeah. I used to take uh, acid just okay. to stay awake, to drive from Aspen to Denver over the Continental Divide to go see shows. Not the worst thing. So, yeah, so we would, this is like in high school. So we would, yeah, we would take like, you know, a half a hit of acid or something to stay awake and drive through these blizzards in the middle of the winter. Not the smartest way to do it. So anyway, I digress. Uh, how'd you get into all of this, the world of psychedelics and plant medicines in the first place? So I grew up in a traditional home, West Michigan, you know, morality was based on religion and Christianity. This was good. This was bad. Um, and then I found cannabis at the age of 16, which sort of opened my mind to like, oh, maybe some of the things that I was taught aren't necessarily what I thought. And then at the age of 19, that same friend introduced me to psilocybin mushrooms. And so I had my first psilocybin experience. It was interesting, but not profoundly life changing or anything like that. And then about five months after that first psychedelic experience, I did acid LSD for the first time, probably around 200 micrograms, which is a good dose. A solid dose level with a few friends. What's one hit? A hundred? About a hundred. Okay. about two hits. Okay. 
out at the beach. It was like a beautiful early May day in Michigan. Went with a few friends, went swimming in Lake Michigan, went walking in the woods and just had that sort of before acid and after acid experience where I was like, <laughs> yeah. oh, I get it now. You know, like I get it. And actually about a week after my first acid experience, I went to Tanzania with a school group because I was studying biology at the time and we were doing field studies in Tanzania, which was code words for just going on safari at, in the Serengeti in Agorogoro crater. And so I brought some LSD with me on the trip and ended up taking a hit of LSD on safari and sort of witnessing this quote unquote circle of life, but on an LSD experience. Wow. Right. And so that just sort of plugged me into this harmonious relationship that nature has. And I remember looking at the wildebeest and looking at, oh, the wildebeest is constructed in such a way, which makes it easy for the lion to go eat it because the lion's at the top of the food chain. And, you know, so just seeing that, that regenerative relationship then, it was around the same time that I was starting to get into paleo and CrossFit. And so it really opened me up to this sense of ancestral wisdom and how a lot of, let's say, hacking biology and physiology is actually just letting go of all the industrial stuff that we've accumulated and getting back to the roots of who we are as humans. And so I thought as part of that, what's so natural to us as humans is to be free, right? And psychedelics, I think, almost more than anything else, teach us what it feels like to be really, truly free. And so several years later, four or five years later, after those first experiences, I was starting my entrepreneurial path, uh, living in Budapest at the time, and just noticed that, you know, there was more medical research coming out about psychedelics. Tim Ferriss and Joe Rogan were starting to publish podcasts about it. Cannabis was generating more and more momentum. And I thought back to those early psychedelic experiences and thought, you know, if I could dedicate my life to one mission, at this point in time, I was 24 at the time, it would be to help educate a broader populace about the real pros and cons of psychedelics. You know, what does the research say? How are these useful? And in particular, right, how can microdosing be used in an intentional and responsible way to help shift an individual's consciousness to accept these broader altered states of consciousness that some folks might not be willing to dive right into. And so then I started the third wave. And then, you know, from, from that point in time, that was about six years ago, there's been a lot that's happened to say the least in the psychedelic space yeah. broadly, but also yeah. specific to the work we've done through third wave. I also started a retreat center in the Netherlands called Synthesis. And so it's been fun as an early entrepreneur in this space and someone who has done a lot of this work myself, just to witness the growth and the evolution of the psychedelic space, the third wave of psychedelics. And, you know, we've now reached a point in 2021 where billions of dollars of investment are starting to come into the space. There's a lot of conversations around nonprofit versus for-profit, indigenous reciprocity, patents on psilocybin. And I'm just fascinated by it all, the good, the bad. It just, it, it's a very rich space. And um, it's just been an honor to to be able to do this work and to educate people in the way that that we've been able to do. So cool, God, yeah. Talking to you and just looking at your your site today to kind of yeah. prepare for this interview, and this happens every time I I journey. I'm like, 
I need to drop everything and just do this. Yeah. <laughs> like literally every journey I have at the end, I'm like, I'm, I think I'm supposed to be a shaman, you know, yeah. or whatever, you know, I don't even, not that, that would be a, not a good look for me. A guide um, tri- or a facilitator yeah, or, just or like, a trip sitter or, yeah, I'm just like, everyone needs to do this, you know? And then of yeah. course I come back to my senses and I'm sure we're going to talk about for some people and sometimes it would not be appropriate, but mm. it's interesting, you know, um, as you just described yourself kind of, being immersed in this world in all ways and, you know, creating businesses around it and things like that. I almost wish that I could just zoom out of it all completely uh, and kind of look at a longer arc of time to see what's really happened because it's kind of, you know, the wheels are moving. And so it just is normal to me now that, you know, there's someone in Vancouver doing, uh, looking into DMT drips and there's, you know, Kuya here in Austin doing ketamine. And it's like, normal people i mean like who's normal but you know i would say there's moderate people who aren't necessarily into you know drugs or psychedelics yeah or dming me like hey what's up with this microdosing where do i find someone i'm like oh it's illegal first off um but it's it's interesting to see where we are and um i also get the sense i mean aside from any kind of post-trip uh naive enthusiasm i really do have a sense that even through the bumps in the road that this is going to experience as it will with any kind of movement, mm-hmm. that this could be the very thing that is the bridge for humanity to reach a higher level of consciousness. And to me, and I want to get your take on this, solving the problems that we have as a human race mm-hmm. in the realm of form mm-hmm. and cause and effect mm-hmm. in Newtonian physics mm-hmm. is not only the most ineffective but slowest way to affect actual change in evolution and these medicines allow us to interface with reality in a quantum realm outside of space and time and that allows us as individual souls spirits and bodies here to in to um, elevate each of our consciousness mm-hmm. unless it consciousnesses and i think it's the hundredth monkey effect of just people breaking free you mentioned the word free and mm-hmm. popping. And I sense that there will be kind of a critical mass when mm-hmm. a certain number of people, whether it's through the use of entheogens or a lot of meditation or whatever they're doing. Or breath work. Or yeah, all the things, right? Is, I mean, yeah. I've had totally psychedelic experiences doing kundalini yoga and just yeah. completely, you know, deep healing, trauma work, all kinds of stuff. But anyway, um, point I'm trying to get to is that a problem can't be solved at the same level of consciousness, which created the problem, right? Which, so, which is the Einstein quote. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then what's the solution to all the problems we have, like fighting on Twitter with, you know, this side <laughs> or that side or vax, no vax. I mean, all the things, right? And it's like, no, the only job we have, if we're smart, right. I think, and that's presuming that I'm smart, is the elevation of consciousness. Right. And, and I, I, I don't know, man, I think this is the thing. I really do. I think it's a juggernaut that maybe people like you and and me to some degree are aware of, but because you're so in it, can you really get an objective point of view on like where this is taking us as a species and where it could go? So a few lots here. That was totally not a question, by the way. (laughs) There's a lot to like peel apart. And and, and one element that I want to hit in is like space and time, right? Because time the way that we've been taught 
or conditioned to think about time is as a very linear process, right? We're born, we experience life, and we die. It happens in a line like that, and that's it. There's nothing else. And industrialism in particular is the thing that has conditioned us to believe in time in that way, because we've had to break up time in order to build an industrial framework that then allowed us to become materially happy or whatever. But prior to that, you know, Nietzsche often talked about the eternal recurrence. We often saw time as circular, right? And so when we're looking at where we are now in this third wave of psychedelics, the context that is often so important is historically, when have we been here before, right? And I think in particular, when have we been here before from a Western perspective or a Western viewpoint, right? Because psychedelics have been used for probably millennia, you know, going back to Gobekli Tepe and, you know, the cradle of civilization, Soma in ancient India, ayahuasca in the Amazon, but rooting it actually in the, let's say the ancient Greeks, right? Because Plato and Aristotle attended these things called the Eleusinian Mysteries, where they drank kaikion and had this beverage that awoke them to the truth of reality, the truth of who they were, this sense of divinity that was within inside of them. And that, let's say, first wave of psychedelics eventually informed the second wave of psychedelics, the, the 50s and 60s, when Albert Hoffman invented LSD and psilocybin came onto the scene and the counterculture and all of that. But it went sideways very quickly because as a culture, we didn't have the container to be able to hold the chaos of the psychedelic experience. Because what they did in the ancient in, you know, ancient Greek times is they said, Hey, look, we have this thing. It's called the Eleusinian mysteries. You're going to go to 20 miles outside of Athens in a place called Eleusis. You're going to drink a beverage called Kaikion and you won't tell anyone about it. It's a secret, right? And if you tell anyone about it, you'll be excommunicated. You'll be killed. <laughs> you'll be totally cut out. I'm going to interject for a second, right? Yeah. That's so brutal. Can you imagine like Having right. a, an ex, I mean, any of the experiences, but I'm thinking of the most, you know, um, mind blowing, like five meo. Like, imagine you're a person and you did that. You have to walk around the world and never tell anyone. Exactly. You know? Exactly. So it's it, it was a very quiet, private thing, and so now with this again, and we tried that with the second wave, but we didn't have the cultural context for it. And now where we're at with the third wave of psychedelics is we're trying to understand how do we manage this, so to say, so it doesn't sort of blow up again, but guide it in a way where we can have that evolution of consciousness, that blooming that we're looking for, right? And so when I think about that in terms of how psychedelics are relevant to go beyond time and space, because we're at this point in time with, you know, there's a lot that's happening in the world with various crises. We're like in a meta crisis, the mental health crises, the climate crises, the meaning crises, the, I mean, there's like 20 crises that we seem to be going through, right? And it's because we're trying to address these crises from this Newtonian framework, from this um, materialist reductionist framework, whatever that is. And what psychedelics open up is this sort of truth of what I call interconnectedness, right? Truth of interconnectedness. We are interconnected with everything else around us. And so if we accept that as a truth, how does that inform the very systems that we're creating to hold uh, this evolution of consciousness that we're stepping into? So Buckminster Fuller, you probably mm -hmm. heard a little bit about. Yeah. He had a quote which was basically, don't try to fix the old system. Don't try to fix what's broken, right? Don't try to solve the problem, but instead create a new system that makes the old system obsolete. 
And it feels like that's what's starting to come into being with psychedelics is they're allowing us to create that new system. Some would call it a mycelial way of being. Some would call it the metaverse and, you know, web three, some would call it, um, you know, they would point to these networked states that are starting to pop up all over. And the attractor point that all of that is going to is decentralization. Right. And so when I think about that new system and what psychedelics can do to help us with that, they allow us to step out of this time space industrial continuum and into a space that is much more expansive where we can use these tools to actually dilate time in such a way to shift consciousness to address these meta crises that we're going Hey, podcast listener, check this out. Did you know indoor air can be two to five or even 100 times more polluted than outdoor air, according to EPA research? And sadly, we are indoors a lot. In fact, Americans spend 90% of our time indoors. So as a result, I've been filtering the air in my house for at least two decades. And it's always just made more sense to have a filter clean the air than to use my lungs as the filter, if you know what I mean. And I've tried many different systems. I've been through quite a few of them, done a lot of research, and uh, Air Doctor is currently by far my favorite and the one I use at home. Air Doctor uses an ultra HEPA filter that's been independently tested to remove 99.99% of tested bacteria and viruses plus virtually everything you want to get out, like pollen, dust, and even smoke. And it also captures particles and chemicals, including a wide range of pollutants, like foul odors, gases, and chemicals like formaldehyde. And this is crazy. In a recent independent study, the Air Doctor 3000 series was even tested and proven to remove 99.97 of the live SARS-CoV-2 virus in a test chamber. Now, of course, is a caveat. I and they can't claim that this cures whatever that thing is, but it did remove it from the air. They are also hella quiet, which I love. That lowers the indoor noise pollution. Plus, they've got something called auto mode, which uses a laser sensor to detect air quality and automatically adjust to the correct filtration level. So it's super quiet, but then when the air gets dirty, it'll ramp up to clean that dirty air and go back to a lower setting. And lastly, as a blue light reduction fanatic, I love that you can run these units on dim mode at night, which turns off all of the blue indicator lights. So that's super helpful. So my recommendation is that you grab yourself an Air Doctor right now. They are just super badass. Here's how you do it. Go to airdoctorpro.com slash Luke. And using that link will save you up to $300 on any of their three different sized units. Again, that site is airdoctorpro.com slash Luke. Dude, love it. Keep going. <laughs> now to someone, you know, to someone who's, you know, living in the 3D world without peak experiences that have tap them into, oh, there's something else here. Talking about something like bending time, it would it have a hard time gaining relevance with, with someone, you know? So it's like, but I know subjectively in my experience, we were talking earlier in some um, ceremonies in which I've sat, I mean, the amount of you know, realizations and problem solving and trauma healing that's taken place in six to eight hours 
in linear time of say talk therapy, for example, I mean, would have taken years and things that I, that I worked on psychological, you know, um, stuck points and things like this, um, patterns of behavior, patterns of thought that just went on for literally decades could be undone in one night of linear time. So it's like, without one having the experience of, of really going quantum. And that word is like, it's a funny word. You know, I have like quantum devices all over and stuff, you know, it's like you can make anything and call it quantum. So I, you know, it's a term I use conservatively, but there's just no other way to say it. You know, it's like the world uh, that exists beyond matter. Right. And when your spirit and your um, kind of awareness mm-hmm. is, uh, for a temporary time untethered from this physical world that seems so real to us, Mm -hmm. you really do step out of space and time. And Mm -hmm. the evidence of that is, is what I just described that such massive changes individually can take place. Well, and then there's clinical research to back that, right? So that even to go a little bit deeper into how that's played out, right? So Johns Hopkins Mm-hmm. has done a lot of clinical research on psychedelics. And the first study that they published was in 2006, which showed that psilocybin, the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, could occasion a mystical type experience. So essentially they tried to quantify through a clinical trial how psilocybin could help someone connect with God and source energy. And then what they did is they showed that the stronger that experience was, the um, greater benefit it had on depression, addiction, alcoholism, PTSD, end-of-life anxiety, all these sorts of things. And it goes back to your point, right? I think Gabor Mate has said this, where like with ayahuasca, you can have 10 years of therapy in a single night, right? Because of how efficacious it is at opening up the subconscious and the unconscious, which most modalities that we've used in the typical medical framework do not do right? So that opens that up and it allows you to actually have a catharsis and process and integrate that. So that's more the medical side of things, right? The clinical framework that they've established for that. But in our conversation and in the work that I do, what I'm much more interested in is not necessarily the medical and clinical model, because again, my hypothesis and my thesis is that's broken. Let's not try to fix it. Instead, what is the new model of human evolution, right? How can psychedelics help with performance? How can psychedelics help with physiological well-being? How can they help with creativity, with flow, with self-actualization, so to say? And so there was a really interesting study published in the 1960s by Jim Fadiman, who's sort of the godfather of microdosing. He wrote the Psychedelic Explorer's Guide and really kicked off all the microdosing craze in, in 2015. And he did a research study in 1966 that showed that LSD and mescaline were incredibly efficacious at helping managers, engineers, architects, professionals solve problems and be more creative. So oftentimes these folks would come in and they'd have a problem they'd they'd been stuck on for three to six months at the minimum. And so Jim gave them either LSD or mescaline and like 80 to 90% of the people who went through it ended up being able to solve that problem because of the psychedelic. Because normally in everyday waking consciousness, we have a very limited framework, right? We use, you know, the classic example is we use 10% of our brain. And when we take a psychedelic, it allows that expansion to happen where all of a sudden these 
things that we didn't see as connected, we finally see as, oh, like I see how that is tied into that, which allows a new system to emerge from it. And of course, in normal business, right? If you're dealing with a problem or, or a challenge, you do a brainstorming session, you may go for walks, blah, 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 blah. It can take months, if not years sometimes to actually solve it. But what I've noticed with psychedelics is that divergent thinking process, right? Which is tied into creativity. Psychedelics more than any other tool that we have enliven that divergent thinking process and make us capable of coming up with solutions that some people would be like, how did you come up with that in the period of time that you came up with it? So, so it's, so, and the, and the reason I talk about all of this is for the skeptic, so to say, right. For someone who maybe hasn't done this before, there's a lot of clinical research that actually points to how psychedelics can dilate time. In fact, there was a research paper published on uh, microdosing LSD about two years ago, where in this research paper, they proved that microdosing LSD changes the individual's perception of time itself. And so I think looking and rooting in some of that, and of course, having the experience yourself can open up, you know, some new pathways and avenues of how these might be useful tools. Yeah. I think one thing about it that's so interesting to me is that specific uh, ability that these experiences have to take you into warp speed mm -hmm. out of the limitations of time and space, especially as it pertains, as you were um, indicating to creativity. You know, I'm thinking about, uh, we were talking about uh, our mutual friend, Harry, mm -hmm. uh, with whom I sat in a, I guess it was a MDA and uh, sassafras and uh, psilocybin journey, just one-on-one -on -one, eye mask music. And I mean, so many things happen. I could, you know, give a six hour trip report just from, from that. But in terms of the creativity, I had been, uh, I had this desire to write a book, right? Uh -huh. Because it's just like what people like me do. Mm -hmm. And, and I was stuck on what it was going to be about. How was I going to do it? I couldn't get started. And, and during that um, journey, the inquiry presented itself. What's up with this book thing? And I was like, let's look at it, you know, talking to consciousness or myself. And I was shown, um, I mean, it was so interesting, but I was shown that the whole motivation for wanting to do it was based on uh, a self-serving uh, purpose, essentially. Like I just, I want to have a book because it, it, you look cool and smart and you get paid more to speak and, and this and that. It was, just, it was just like a business idea kind of. And um, so the ideas that I had were really flat mm. and that's why I wasn't excited about it because mm. that's not really what motivates me. What motivates me is elevating consciousness. Mm -hmm. And so in the course of five hours, I was given the title of the book, the cover of the book, the entire premise of the book, and also um, the sequence of a, a children's book. Because the book that I'm that I'm writing now, and I'm writing the book, is definitely not for kids. You know, what I mean? it's pretty pretty hairy. But you know that kind of thing, and it's like I don't know if I just sat down on a Monday morning at nine o'clock, you know, set an alarm, Luke, think of what the book thing is. I mean, I could have been sitting there for years, like I don't know, is it this, is it that? And it was just, it wasn't just that the ideas came in kind of a creative inspiration. It was this knowingness, this is what you're supposed to do right. and why you're supposed to do it, right? And without a purpose, I wouldn't have been interested and I wouldn't have begun the process, you know? And the purpose was to help people. And it, it sounds so funny saying it because it sounds so novel. Well, duh, why else would you want to write a book? But to 
make a contribution to humanity. But I, I hadn't really thought of it that way until then, you know? And then when I did, it was just like, it just got like thrust into my heart. No, this is the thing that you have to do. You need to do. Here's why, and here's what, and here's how. And thus began that process. Well, and that why is so important, mm-hmm. right? That oftentimes we start with the upper layers of what's the, you know, the what or the how, and we really just got to go to the why, right? Cause the why then influences everything around it. <clears throat> and if we, and oftentimes in, in, again, in culture, society, we've been conditioned not to think about the why, right? We've been conditioned to instead think about what do our parents want us to do or what does culture want us to do or what do, what do all these external things want us to do? Whereas what psychedelics help to open up is that sort of reconnection with the self, reconnection with the, the soul, right? Which I, I see there's a connection between the soul and the why. Because once you tap back into that, the why becomes very clear. And like you said, it often has something to do with contribution to community, right? Contribution to something greater than you. Um, it's not often that deeper why is not about money or it's not about status. It's not about these sort of egoic tendencies, <laughs> right, right. right? You need to get like below that because yeah, those yeah. are very fragile and they don't really last that long. But what psychedelics do is they allow us to go right to the, the, the why, so to say the purpose and meaning, and then kind of beauty, beauty grows from that. And that that's even proven to be true on my own journey. You know, like I started third wave in 2015 for two years, it was a hobby. I was running another small business at the time. It was just a labor of love. I thought we really need to publish this content. I've had these incredible experiences myself with psychedelics. And I think a lot of people could benefit from this. So let's start publishing content. Let's start a podcast, et cetera, et cetera. It's only been in the last, let's say year or so that it's actually become financially feasible for me to do what I'm doing but somehow, some way, and I, like I had another business, I sold it not for a ton of money by any means. So I've always had to like stretch, but I figured it out. Right. And oftentimes if the why isn't clear, then any creative project that we want to take on that is significant, that isn't just, I'm going to make a painting, but instead is like a three to five to 10 year project. If that why isn't really fucking like clear and clean and strong, then when the going gets tough, so to say, we'll just quit. Right. And so I think it's really important for any creative project that we are very clear on that why. And that's something that psychedelics can, can help us with. That's really interesting in finding the motivation to do or not do something. And when you're in a psychedelic experience, typically depending on, you know, with whom, <laughs> where, what you're taking, all of that. But in most cases, the ego is subjugated to some degree. And in some cases, very dramatically, right? And you're tapped into your soul. And when you were saying that, I'm thinking, you know, what does the soul want? What's our purpose of being here in a body? And it seems to be that we're in a school called Earth and that we take on a body so that we can have, <laughs> you're making the feel free face. <laughs> Trust me, it's worth it. <laughs> um, you know, we're inhabiting this body, we're in this material world so that we can grow and evolve as a soul. And so when you're in a medicine experience and your ego is shoved to the side, however gentle or not that process might be, and you're getting downloads for creative ideas and finding your why, obviously the why is going to come from your soul and your soul is a benevolent, loving entity of sorts that 
is looking out for you as a personality, as a human's best interest, mm-hmm. and also the best interest of all others, you know, presumably, unless your soul is demonic or something, right? Which maybe could Which happen. Which happens yeah. in psychedelics. You have, yeah. you, you have a few narcissists. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, that, but, but yeah. you know, it's, it's just, it's trippy to think about that. And that was the experience I had with the book idea that I, I wanted to chew on a little bit. And it was like, oh no, your little limited egoic motivation is just so feeble in comparison to, um, you know, the magnitude of what the soul wants. The soul like really wants to heal people and make a contribution and to alleviate suffering, you know? And so getting that idea from the soul perspective, is just like, man, there's a passion and a fire there because that idea didn't come from, you know, a more like a, a, fl- a flimsy or more superficial motivation. Right. right? It has depth to it. It's yeah. rooted in something that's beyond just the individual self. It's rooted in... Yeah. Something broader, something greater. Yeah. So imagine just millions and millions of people popping through their inspiration from the soul's perspective rather than, you know, base level instincts of survival and ego gratification and hoarding of, you know, material. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's there's so much more to the human experience as as many of us know. So yeah, that's that's very interesting. Um, well, oh man, there's but one more note on that before yeah, we yeah. kind of move on from yeah. that. Just for the listeners, you know, psychedelic. The very word means soul manifesting. Oh wow, I didn't and know that. So psyche, which is from Greek, um, technically means mind, but where the Greeks thought about it, it was actually much more soul because they were much more focused. And then delos is manifestation, right? Which is what Delic comes from. So even wow. the very word psychedelic is soul manifesting. Wow. Right? So we can fully tap into that essence. And that's, then, that's cool because sometimes I get caught up in the, uh, in the vernacular of these things. There's not like a blanket, like people will say plant medicines and then mention psilocybin. Right. It's not a plant or 5-MeO, Bufo, Bufo, right. various toad. It's, it's like, toad. that's not either, you know? Yeah. So I'm like, do you just call them entheogens? And, and we were talking about 2CB earlier uh-huh. and, and I've taken that and it, to me, wasn't necessarily psychedelic so i think of psychedelic i just think of visuals right it's like you know space perception and colors and things moving around that aren't actually moving and all that kind of stuff so that's very interesting i like that definition well the classic psychedelics are the 5-ht2a agonists right so there's 14 serotonin receptors and the classic psychedelics mescaline lsd dmt psilocybin ibogaine maybe 5-meo dmt would be a classic psychedelic and those activate the 5-ht2a receptor so that's typically how um they're measured but then you know some people would say mdma is a psychedelic some people would say cannabis is a psychedelic some people would say ketamine is a psychedelic and i like the word psychedelic i still think it's the best word Plant medicine has its issues. Entheogen, I find to be too religious in a way, like a little too spiritual. And a lot of folks are like, but psychedelics have, it has all this baggage from the sixties. And it's like, that's true. And it still is the best phrase that we have to actually describe what these compounds do to us. And so much of what we're working on now is like, yeah, it had stigma and we can reframe that, right? Like that word psychedelic doesn't have to be tainted till the end of time. Part of the work that we're doing through education is to actually help people understand that psychedelics are healthy, they're beneficial, they're useful when used, of course, with intention in ceremony, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Well, now that I know uh, a better definition of psychedelics, I'm going to start using that one. Um, 
I, there are a bunch of other very specific things I wanted to ask you about, okay. and and especially as it pertains to um, to microdosing and and such. But um, going back to the waves of psychedelic, like you could say you know, it might've been millennia. It was the first wave, right? We don't even know how long that was, but indigenous peoples and then into kind of the beginnings of Western civilization. And then of course we land in the fifties and sixties and then there's um, some experimentation. There is research going on and then something gets out of a lab and, you know, Ram Dass and fucking, um, Timothy Leary, and Timothy Leary are giving it to college kids. And then you've got Woodstock and, you know, and all the things. And then, you know, the government's like, whoa, pulling the reins on this and starts classifying all of these substances in one category. You know, they put mescaline in the same category as cocaine or crystal meth and mushrooms. It's like, and I've done every drug I think I've ever heard of, except PCP. I haven't never did oh. that, probably never will, but uh, literally any drug I've ever heard of, pretty much I've done. And they would definitely, to me, have a different classification, which is a longer conversation. But to the point, uh, you know, call me paranoid, but generally speaking throughout the course of history, I would not say that most governments have been there by the people for the people and that their um, efforts at controlling a populace and their behavior and the consequences and legislation around what you put in your body seem to be based on control, right? So to me, when the 60s, happened and you had all of these young people waking up and getting crazy and reckless uh, in many cases. And I'm sure, as you said, like the culture wasn't really ready. It didn't have the integrity and kind of the framework by which to have these experiences be beneficial and really move us forward. So, you know, we had a lot of great art and music. And if you look at the Beatles in 1964 versus 1968, Way cooler. you know what I mean? Sergeant Peppers or yeah. I want to hold your hand. Right. Exactly. So it's like, it obviously did Jimi Hendrix. I mean, like it did something culturally, but my question, if I can get to it is why is the government who I do not see generally as being my friend, uh -huh like not stopping this now because it, it's like now we have the sort of um, blueprint for it from people like us and, and many others who are moving this forward in, in medicine and just outside of medicine and culture mm -hmm. in a more mindful way mm -hmm. to me, like the powers that be's worst enemy is an awakened populace. Mm -hmm. So I'm always sort of just curious as to why they're allowing, you know, certain states to legalize psilocybin and MDMA therapy looks like it's around the corner and there's ketamine mm -hmm. clinics. Like, mm -hmm. why are they letting us do this? I guess is the question, you know, yeah. do they not understand that this is going to be their downfall eventually? They don't. They no. just don't. No, I just, they, they do you know what I'm trying to get at? I get, I get what you're coming from. I don't think they can grok that. I don't think, cause they're still stuck in such a, let's say a 3d world to use a phrase, whereas we're going into 4d and 5d and 60, so to say. Um, and like the way that psychedelics have been brought through clinical research, right. With Roland Griffiths, Johns Hopkins, with Robin Carr Harris and Imperial college, all the work that Rick Doblin has done through maps, you know, MDMA for PTSD, the forerunners of the psychedelic Renaissance, this third wave of psychedelics have been very cautious and careful not to repeat some of the mistakes of the fifties and sixties. Right. Because 
As you mentioned, in the 50s, there were, I think, a thousand clinical papers published on the efficacy of LSD to treat everything from anxiety to depression to alcoholism to autism to a number of other things, right? But when it got outside of the clinic, it was in very, very high doses and things went sideways as a result. Now, also in the 60s, those who were using these high doses of LSD were also protesting the Vietnam War, right? And they couldn't make protesting illegal, but they could make the drugs that the protesters were using illegal, LSD and cannabis. Ah, interesting. So, so that's also another element. Now, what's happened this time around is cannabis is making a really big difference, right? Because cannabis is now legal, I think in 12 or 13 or 14 states, something like that. It's medical in a number of other states. It's helped to reframe the general populace to understand, oh, this is how and why cannabis can be beneficial um, for taxes or for pain and opiates or for um, a number of other reasons and things. And as we both know, cannabis is just the gateway drug. And I don't mean that in like cannabis is going to open you up to the harder drugs. I mean, cannabis is the gateway drug for psychedelics to be more widely accepted. And I think because of how amazing the clinical research results have been with psilocybin and MDMA, the government has come to a point in time where like they have 22 veterans who are committing suicide every day as a result of these useless wars that they've committed in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. They're looking, they're actively looking for solutions to help them. And MDMA looks to be the best solution at this point in time to help them. So they want to support that to some degree. Um, you know, when it comes to something like psilocybin, we have a mental health, health crisis with major depressive disorder and treatment-resistant depression, and there seems to be a sense of wanting to help people who have those issues, and Prozac and Zoloft and all this other bullshit that pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical companies have been feeding people forever, again, is not working. And so I think they're open to looking at novel and new solutions. In fact, uh, the DEA has actually... Um, publicly supported the rescheduling of psilocybin from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2 or 3. And the DEA has also supported an increased production of psilocybin because they see how much <laughs> momentum wow. is being generated. But again, what you and I both understand is this larger, larger meta trend. And this larger meta trend started in the 60s. Right. So there was actually a phenomenal book called The Third Wave. Uh, it was written by Alvin Toffler, who's this futurist who wrote it in 1980. And in that book, he talks about the transition from the industrial age to the information age. Right. And so what happened in the 60s was because of the widespread use of psychedelics, the widespread use of psychedelics is what influenced the computer revolution. And the computer revolution is what influenced this decentralization technology that now is much more widespread. And so since the 60s, we've wanted to be more free in terms of the type of systems that we're building, but the government, the federal government has sort of kept it clamped down. And now what's happening specifically with psychedelics is you have Oregon who just legalized psilocybin. You have Detroit, Seattle, Oakland, and Denver who have decriminalized all plant medicines. You have a state like California that's looking to legalize psychedelics as well as Michigan and Massachusetts. So there is this sort of decentralizing of psychedelic acceptance where even, let's say, a worst case scenario, we get all the clinical trial results in for psilocybin and MDMA. 
the FDA wants to approve it for use and the DEA says, no, we're not doing that, right? We're not ready yet, et cetera, et cetera. There are still then these other channels that are developing that are not um, reliant on the centralized structure of the FDA that ensures that psychedelics will become more commonly available. So I think it's partly like the clinical research has just been so great that they can't turn a blind eye to that. And we live in a very different time uh, age, time age, time period, whatever, than the 60s. Because in the 60s, there wasn't the internet. There weren't all these podcasters who were openly talking about it. There wasn't a decentralized sort of approach to education and information. Now, you know, I mentioned Joe Rogan and Tim Ferriss before. You have a very popular podcast. There are many other popular podcasts that have just started to openly talk about psychedelics. And that way of influencing is much different than traditional media because a huge element of why the 60s went sideways was because of the media coverage, right? And the way that the media covered this blossoming of psychedelics. And what's happening now is traditional media companies don't hold as much power as they used to. Instead, individual podcasters like you can influence people in such a way. And so when you're actively talking about this, I think that has sort of a <laughs> grassroots downstream effect yeah. where people go, okay, you know, I had heard one thing and now I'm hearing something else from someone I trust. Let me dive deeper into this. I love that. And so there's definitely, you know, wow. momentum in that. Wow. Way. Well said, man. God, you I didn't even really give you a cohesive question and you still answered everything I was thinking about. And to your point, you know, it's funny, I, after, you know, being sober for so many years and obviously my family supportive of that, you know, I was in a real bad way earlier in life. But when I did my first ayahuasca retreat, um, maybe two and a half years ago or something, I, I never mentioned it to my parents, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. My dad's a bit more square. I think you know, my mom grew up in Berkeley in the 60s, so she's no stranger to these ideas. Um, she's probably taken acid herself for all I know. Well, he has, actually. Microdosing. Yeah, she's, probably, she's probably, if she's watching, I mean, mom, Berkeley, sorry. My mom hates it when I talk about her on my podcast. I'm always like, careful what you say. You know, she's yeah. like, dude, I have a life here, you know? Yeah. Uh, but anyway, to my point, my dad, um, maybe a week ago, calls me. He's like, hey, he texts me. He's like, hey, can you talk? And that's not abnormal. Sure. We got on the phone. He's like, listen, um, you know, what's going on with the psychedelic stuff? You know, and I was like, ah, oh, here's the call. Cause you know, they see the content I'm making. And I, and I had the talk with him and you know, his, he was a, not overly concerned, but like, you know, I'm just kind of worried this could lead back to your old ways kind of thing, you know? And right. I was like, okay, here we go. I got to, you know, educate him about what makes this different. And really the, I could have just, summed up that and like look at the external manifestations in my life i'm more successful healthy happy than i've ever been in my entire life and if i was doing drugs in the way i used to do them and the types of drugs i used to do you'd have about two months before you see my entire life just cave and i'm literally in jail or dead you know i mean it's just not even exaggerating that's how that's how bad things go for me um when i'm you know doing the types of drugs i used to do and the way i used to do them so i said hey let's look at the results by their fruits you shall know them and i mean to prove anything to my dad but just to assuage his concerns and then I started um, just explaining some of the things you're talking about and the, the history of it and how it was vilified and how they were miscategorized and all the research that's going on and really what the intention and purpose of a guy like me exploring these things is. And, you know, by the end of a 30 minute call, he was like, 
more interested, you know, yeah. than he was, uh, like, you know, concerned. concerned. Or, yeah, you know, and then then he sent me a text like a week later. He's like, yeah, I talked to, I talk, I won't mention who it is, but I talked to this other person in the family, and they've been doing this thing called microdose, and it sounds awesome, you know. Now he's like curious about it to the point where I'm almost like, you know, when we leave the United States, thinking about. I'm sending them some microdose mushrooms, right. you know, it's like, dude, do half a cap, see how it goes. But I mean, I have a similar story with my parents. Really? I'll just, I'll just give a shout out to, to my parents as well, because, you know, I grew up in a not conservative, but traditional environment. Both of my parents are more progressive in terms of social policy, but definitely traditional. And I remember in 2014, I told my mom, both my parents that I had done acid and I remember my mom's response was, if you keep doing that, you will turn into a wet noodle. That was her, that was her belief because she had, she, when, when she, she had never done it herself, but growing up in the environment that she had, someone very close to her had fallen into the drug trap. So to say cocaine, you know, other harder drugs, as well as mescaline and LSD. And my mom thought, oh, the reason that this, that it was this person close to her struggling so much is because she had all this drug use before. So she's like, if Paul does that, it'll turn out really bad. So I just started like, you know, we now have an internal joke on the team with third wave that I built the website for my mom. <laughs> right, right. Right. Cause I wanted a public place that anyone could go that has guides and has good information and is well presented but then, you know, I just would send her information and send them research. And over time, they started to sort of open up to it. And my dad has always been more accepting and understanding. My mom and I tend to be, she's a Taurus. I'm a Leo. We kind of like, you know, go, <laughs> yeah, go head to head in, in that way. Sense. And then in 2018, uh, Michael Pollan's book came out, right? And so I sent it to my dad and had, you know, he read the book because we have this thing where we trade books where I'll read one and then he'll read one. And so he read Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind and he was like, okay, I'm, I might be interested. And, and you know, I'm, 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 I'm more open to this than I was before, right? And, you know, this is someone who has never done any substances whatsoever, has never been drunk in his life, has never smoked cannabis in his life. And all of a sudden he was open to potentially trying something like microdosing or a higher dose of psilocybin. So my parents went from, this is going to ruin your life very skeptical. We have no idea what you're doing. And, you know, to, oh, we see why you're doing what you're doing. We're more and more open to it. And in fact, you know, six months ago or so, my mom, she works or worked as a social worker in a hospital. She's retired now. And she sent me a few emails. Uh, she works for a major hospital system up in Michigan, and they were starting to get um, emails in their newsletters about ketamine-assisted psychotherapy and MDMA-assisted psychotherapy and how this major hospital network was going to start doing education for their doctors and clinicians about psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. Wow. And I thought, wow, like things have really changed in the last few years That's to get crazy. to the point where my mom in, in the Midwest as a social worker is now getting emails about training for psychedelic assisted psychotherapy from her employer. who's was a wow. very conservative employer in, in Michigan. Yeah. So cool. Let's all dose our parents. Let's do it. Heal the generational trauma. That's right. <laughs> might take more than a microdose. For, <laughs> yeah, might. That. But that, that's, that's exciting. You know, it's like, I want to, kind of take a time machine to even five or 10 years from now. I mean, can yeah. you imagine? I, I just think, man, the healing that has taken place in my life 
And we'll get into the disclaimers and warnings. And, you know, I'm hesitant to be like a cheerleader for psychedelics. Reticent. Plant medicine. Reticent. Reticent. Thank Reticent. you. Reticent. Too much acid. Uh, <laughs> Today? <laughs> maybe. Or generally. Maybe. Uh, no, that's the old paradigm, right? right causes right. brain damage. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I, I always want to be responsible Yet at the same time, sometimes it's hard to bridle my enthusiasm because of my subjective experience, you know, and just mm -hmm. the things that I've been able to heal. And I just think, oh my God, there's so many people out there with PTSD and they don't even know it. So many people have not only had childhood trauma, but just being a human being, even if you do everything right and you have good people around you is traumatic, right? It's, yeah. it's not an easy game. And mm -hmm. it's just incredible to think about the potential of people outside of, you know, our circles, like you're discussing with our parents and just, you know, normal people um, having the opportunity to heal themselves, you know, just like actually heal themselves. Yeah, and, that's, yeah. and that's something we even talk a lot about with, with third wave in our internal team. It's like, there's a lot of bullshit in the personal development space. There's a lot of bullshit in the sort of spiritual you know, evolutionary space, if you will, the, 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 the higher, like it's hard to tell what's real and what's not sometimes because it can be very murky. And what we both know is that psychedelics work, right? They, they just do like, there's something about them. And of course it's not blanket, right? I think this is something that you've probably talked about on other podcasts. Like it requires preparation. It requires intention setting. It requires, you know, a, a ceremonial setting or something that, that is, that is a bit more held for that to happen. It requires, I think more than anything integration, but if you follow that process, so to say, and you have community to support you, you have a coach or a guide to support you, these medicines work. They heal trauma. Most importantly, they heal trauma. They inspire creativity and agency and freedom and I think they're a sort of glimmer of optimism in a world that feels very cynical at this point in time. <laughs> yeah, to say the least. This show and my lifestyle in general is all about achieving maximum health on all levels, mental, emotional, spiritual, and of course, physical. When it comes to the physical, I do my best to avoid guesswork, which is why I love this company, Inside Tracker. They've created an ultra-personalized performance system that analyzes data from your blood, DNA, lifestyle, and even fitness tracker to help you optimize your body and reach your wellness goals. Getting all this info about your body adds an exponential level of precision and customization to your Inside Tracker action plan. And when it comes to biomarker testing, I want to go for the max level of health, not the average. For example, my recent Inside Tracker testing revealed that my inner age is 47, which is cool because I'm currently 51, but I also found that my cortisol and LDL cholesterol was high. Fortunately, my vitamin D was optimized, probably because I get out in the sun so often, as were my magnesium and inflammation markers. So I had a little bit of work to do. And the cool part about getting this info is now I can use their app and web platform to improve based on their personalized diet, supplement, and fitness recommendations. So with Inside Tracker, you can track your progress and adjust based on real-time feedback from your body. Then you retest every three months to see what's working and maybe more importantly, what's not, or even adjust your goals to develop a new action plan. This is an awesome tool for those of us wanting to make the best use of our time and money when it comes to being healthy. 
And you, my friends, can get on board right now and get yourself optimized. Just go to insidetracker.com slash Luke, where you will save 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store. So again, just use the link insidetracker.com slash Luke. Being a pretty chipper guy, sometimes I just go on my telegram channel shout out to my telegram channel if you want the if you want the bad news join my telegram channel but yeah i mean i just you know i look at alternative media and things are going on in the world and it's very tempting to get drawn into the duality of like oh my god we're fucked you know um but after enough of these experiences you know i think one is more easily able to kind of walk between both worlds and take all of it a little less serious. Way less I think serious. That's been kind of one right. of the big benefits for me, aside from just, ooh, I healed this thing and that thing and had this realization. It's just, it's a more sort of detached experience of life. I was talking to my wife, Allison, about this this morning. Actually, it's like, it's hard to describe, I think, to someone who hasn't had this experience over time, but it's like, and that's like, I'm kind of here, but also not here. And I used to be so here that it was, it was suffrage, uh, you know, right. it's like just believing the thoughts so attached and, to... yeah, and believing the feelings and just attachments and addictions and patterns and habits and, you know, stress and wanting to wrestle my control over every little thing to stay safe and, you know, all of that. And so with what's going on with the world now, I mean, yeah, there's a, like a kind of a fighter inside of me that's really concerned about just the human rights abuses and just the power grab that's going on worldwide. I mean, it's just astonishing. Yet at the same time, like I know that this is all kind of theater, you know, especially after a few five MEO experiences. I mean, that to want to talk about coming back here and be like, oh, this is totally not real, you know? But I think that to your point of the integration, you know, it's like, okay, so we have this liftoff experience with psychedelics Mm -hmm. in which you have not just, you know, an intellectual concept of you not being your body or your mind or your ego, all of these, you know, philosophical ideas that so many of us had read in books and been to meditation retreats and done the yoga and non-duality and all of this stuff. It's like, yeah, it's there and you kind of get it. But as you start to have that visceral experience, it's so fun to actually come back and just be a person again mm-hmm. after you've been disintegrated, you know? It's like you're just blown apart and everything you think was real is not, but you can't walk around in a body in that state, I don't think, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe very few enlightened masters have been able to stay here in a very high level of consciousness and be a householder and do their human thing while they're just totally blown out mm-hmm. into full-scale self-realization. So it's almost fun just kind of coming back from those experiences and learning how to bridge those two worlds. And in so doing, everything's just a lot less serious. You know, I mean, I have shit going on in my life right now, dude, that would, I mean, years ago, I would have, I'd be having a nervous breakdown. I mean, I would be complete fucking disaster apart from all of the things going on, broadly speaking in the world, just, you know, buying a house and renovations went to hell and just Mm. not really being grounded and just so many crazy things happening. And it's like, I don't know. There's just a trust in spirit that everything is exactly as it's supposed to be. Yeah. And not like just saying that, but having the felt experience of that, that I'm going to be all right. I am all right. You're all right. The world's all right. I don't need to save the world. I don't need to save all those people that are 
I think harming themselves in various ways. Um, it's like, no, man, I'm not in charge. I'm not in control. Mm-hmm. And from the ego's perspective, that's terrifying. But from the soul's perspective, that's freedom. That's freedom. That's liberation. It's like, yeah. I don't need to control. I remember at the end of my first 5-MEO experience, I was, I was like praying to God. And one of the many prayers was, you know, would you just be with me and just protect me? And like this voice from the heaven said, you don't need protection because you are safe. Mm. I mean, just a, just a, a, a morsel like that just changed my life. Mm-hmm. I could read that in a book and go, oh mm-hmm. yeah, I kind of get that. Sure. And then the final analysis, like we're all going to be cool. Okay. You leave your body, you drop your body and then you go on wherever you go and it, it's all good. But you no, know, to know that I don't have to walk around like interfacing with the world, like a bumper car, you know, like, Oh, danger, danger, danger. It's like, or praying to be protected or to be safe. No, we're all in inherently safe. Right. 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 Um, and that's a lot. It's, in, the, it's the remembrance of that. That's yeah. what, that, that's what psychedelics do. Right. They yeah. help us to remember that. Cause we often forget, right. The personality and the way that we've been raised oftentimes is, because of traumatic experiences that have often happened to people, they don't feel safe in the world. And when we have this direct connection to divinity, right, it lets us know that you are safe and that you are loved, I think, as well. Yeah. It's really, really big. The yeah. love element is huge because that sense of unconditional love is, <clears throat> we literally can't get that anywhere else. I mean, I had a relatively great upbringing, you know, my parents, a lot of love. Um, I had no major trauma. Um and like, still, my mom's love was conditional in some ways. My dad's love was conditional in some ways. And I think that is the appeal oftentimes of this experience is when you experience God, source, whatever you want to call it, there's this felt embodiment of unconditional love, which physiologically and emotionally and spiritually is so healing. And I think yeah. it's where so much yeah. of that healing comes from. And so transformative, mm-hmm. you know, back to that evading space and time, you know, one moment of feeling that changes your life forever, mm-hmm. you know, it's just crazy. Yeah. And the per- the people in your life could tell you how much they love you and even demonstrate that every day. And it, it, does, it pales in comparison to what, you know, that felt sense of, it's not even a feeling, it's just the knowingness that that there is love that exists universally and that Mm -hmm. you were included in that right and that there is this benevolent field energy source god thing Mm -hmm. that just totally loves you no matter what Mm -hmm. you've done or who you are what you'll be and that there's no way to undo that Mm -hmm. it's incredibly transformative it is it's just the best all right i want to get into some some uh some other questions here. Right. So I, love it. I would be uh, definitely remiss if, if we didn't get into microdosing and this is kind of a nice segue out of, out of that because you don't really experience God when you're microdosing. Yeah. Right? Well, it's, you know, it, the deeper experiences aren't necessarily appropriate for all people at all stages of development. And there's so many different life circumstances that could be, and probably are prohibitive to some people, mm-hmm. even just socially, our parents, for example, right. Mm-hmm. Just the social constructs and the fears and the stigma uh, but I think the Trojan horse in the best way possible, and obviously the safest way into this is microdosing. And you mm-hmm. mentioned it before, and I know you have like a 
a course, I think on your site, you know, mm -hmm. to do this. And so many people message me all the time with so many questions about microdosing, mm. you know, and these are people that maybe don't run in circles where these substances are prevalent. And there's, you know, oh, I know I probably know five people right now that I could text that could bring some, you know, microdose capsules of mushrooms over here, whatever. But I think that, um, that this is going to be such a meaningful contribution to start to educate people. And I really appreciate the work that you're doing. Mm. And so I want to get into kind of the nuts and bolts of that. Mm -hmm. And also just admit that I think because I started microdosing different things around the same time a couple of years ago, as I did going and having, you know, ceremonies and doing full journeys, I think I've kind of missed the benefits of microdosing because mm -hmm. it's just kind of in the periphery, right? I didn't mm -hmm. go from modus operandi sure. to microdosing here and there. And then later on having a big journey, you know, went right into four ayahuasca ceremonies and all kinds of other things and then added microdosing. So I kind of don't notice the impacts, mm -hmm. but I know that it's profoundly impactful because I've been the guy that's turned a few people on mm -hmm. that weren't ready to take a full journey, but they're willing to microdose. I mean, right. I can think of my friend David right now. And I mean, he has told me on numerous occasions that Luke, dude, you changed my life because I turned him on to uh, microdosing psilocybin. And he's like, it literally cured my depression and anxiety. And also in his case, um, addictions, just crazy. Cause he was a sober guy. Like to drugs or just, yeah. To, yeah I mean, yeah. he was sober, uh, but then <laughs> I, mean, I don't, this is not something I'm going to try and addicts don't try this at home, but he uses some things like alcohol and cannabis recreationally now and it's been you know a couple of years and does not show any signs of becoming addicted to them. Wow. Like he was before. Sure. And this is like a sober guy that had a lot of problems and had to stop everything. 100% started microdosing, had a few, um, you know, macro experiences and is basically like healed of addiction, which is fucking crazy. That is crazy. Yeah, but his, his big, most meaningful first launch was just following a nice, you know, safe microdosing schedule and it had a huge impact. And I know that's true for so many people. I just feel like yeah. oh, I kind of missed the contrast of that yeah. because I just went for all of it at sure. once. Sure. So uh, let's cover a few of the different types of substances that, that are common in microdosing and maybe mm -hmm. even a couple obscure ones mm -hmm. and then get into um, you know, like schedule, the amount, like the whole thing, if you could kind of tie a bow on that for someone say is hearing this and they have just heard the word, but have no idea what's happening here. Can I do a little history? Totally. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's well, great. I didn't even think I of that. The, I Cause I don't even, I don't even know that there is a history. I studied history in undergrad. So whenever I, it comes back, I'm like, let's leave a little more context in this. So Albert Hoffman, yes, the inventor of LSD, yeah. right. He was interviewed by high times in the mid seventies. And so there's like an article that was published in 1976. And in that article, he said that he thought that 20 to 25 micrograms of LSD would be useful as an antidepressant or a euphoriant. And so Albert Hoffman went on for the last 30 years of his life, microdosing LSD to help with energy and clarity. He lived till he was 102 years old. <laughs> oh shit, really? Yeah. Wow. So word of that got back to Jim Fadiman somehow. And so Jim was like, this is interesting. Let's explore this with a small group of friends. So Jim got some acid, sent it out to a small group of friends in the Bay Area and just asked them to write back about their experiences with microdosing and how it went. And then he included a lot of those experiences in his book, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. He had a chapter, chapter 16, that was just about microdosing. 
Is that the word he used for it? Microdosing? Mm -hmm. Yep. So, and he sort of invented that term. So oh, okay. To say. Okay. Um, because microdosing was not a thing, you know, in the, in the fifties and sixties, they did some research on psycholytic assisted psychotherapy, which is taking lower doses of psychedelics, like 40 times instead of just once. But microdosing is a, was not really a thing. Um, so Jim invents the term, publishes the book in 2011. In 2015, he's on the Tim Ferriss podcast. And then it sort of, you know, blossoms and takes off from there. Rolling Stone publishes a piece on it. A number of other media publications publish a piece on it. And it was at that time that I heard about it, that I heard about microdosing because I listened to the Tim Ferriss podcast here and there. And I thought back to the early experiences that I had with psychedelics, right? When I was 19 and 20, these higher dose LSD experiences. And I remembered from those experiences that I had this sort of afterglow effect where for the week or two weeks after I was more mindful, I was more disciplined about the food that I ate, I was more <laughs> connected in my relationships, mm -hmm. right? Kind of these typical afterglow effects we have. <laughs> for right? real. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh, I feel amazing. This is Yeah. Incredible. I have that after ayahuasca. Right. And, and five MEOs, those two mainly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's it's funny because I never actually thought about that afterglow, but that is quite pronounced in some cases. And it's because, you know, you were talking about rigidity, right? How sometimes we become too attached and rigid. And what happens when we do these higher doses of psychedelics is we become more malleable. We become more relaxed. We become more flowy with life so that we were not resisting it so much, but we're simply going with it. And so I thought back to those higher doses and considered microdosing and was like, okay, I bet if I microdose, let's say two times a week, which is what Jim Fadiman had recommended as a protocol, that way that will elongate this afterglow effect where instead of it just being for a week or two weeks, I can have this afterglow indefinitely. So I ended up microdosing twice a week for seven months with LSD. It was profoundly impactful. It was so interesting to me at that time that I started Third Wave just to educate more and more people around it. Um, and essentially what I learned both through microdosing myself, but also doing all that research is that microdosing is not so much, hey, just take a very low dose of a psychedelic and see what happens. Instead, it's taking a subperceptible dose of a psychedelic, so about a tenth of a regular dose, and doing it two or three times per week for a minimum of at least a month. So just like you wouldn't expect to you know, experience all these benefits from meditation. If you sat down on the cushion, <laughs> you know, sit down on the cushion 15 minutes later, you're like, am I enlightened yet? Um, no, like with meditation, you meditate every day for four to six weeks. And at the end of those six weeks, you're going to notice significant changes from when you started. Microdosing is very similar where you're committing to doing it two or three times a week for let's say four to six weeks combining it with some sort of mindfulness practice, meditation, yoga, breath work, because that helps to ground the energy a little bit more. And then doing it, usually most people do it with LSD or psilocybin, because those are the two most common ones. So with LSD, it would be somewhere between 10 and 15 micrograms. With psilocybin, anywhere from like 100 to 200 milligrams usually is what people will do. You know, some people will microdose ayahuasca as well. Um, some people will microdose iboga. Uh, I think microdosing San Pedro is actually the, the, the best substance that we currently have for microdosing. And the reason for that um, is because psychedelics are anti-inflammatory, right? And the, the psychedelic that is the most potent as an anti-inflammatory is San Pedro. 
And so microdosing, my sense of the benefits that people are experiencing from microdosing is the impact that it's having on inflammation, chronic inflammation. And that in my, by microdosing, let's say for a consistent period of time for four to six weeks, it's helping to lower chronic inflammation in the body, which is then leading to uh, you know, a, a relief of depression, alleviating anxiety. People, you know, some people had like shingles and they started microdosing and their shingles went away. Some people, women, obviously women in particular had really painful periods and then they start microdosing and their really painful periods goes away. So there seems to be this harmonious impact that microdosing is having where it's just allowing the body to better communicate with itself. So that way it can show up in the world a little more balanced, a little more centered um, in, in everyday life. Other people will talk about how it helps with creativity. It helps with flow. It helps with social anxiety. For me, it was largely social anxiety that it helped with. You know, when I started microdosing, I was 24 at the time and just coming out of college. I had been in a fraternity in college and had used alcohol quite a bit to help with that. And I started microdosing to replace alcohol and it helped quite a bit with that as well. Um, a lot of folks were also using it to get off uh, pharmaceutical medications. So they've right. been on Zoloft, they've been right. on Prozac, they've been on Wellbutrin, they've been on a number of other medications and they're sick of feeling numb. They're sick of not feeling any emotions whatsoever. They're sick of the addictive nature of these pharmaceutical medications. I mean, it's terrible. So many people get on it, they don't realize how addictive it is. I'm generally a pretty easygoing guy, but I do have one huge pet peeve in the health and wellness industry, which is the fact that people spend so much energy on diet fads while ignoring something that's just as bad as junk food, in my opinion. I'm talking about junk light, blue flickering light to be specific. Blue light, meaning any light that looks white at night, trashes your melatonin levels and thus your sleep. But melatonin does way more than help you sleep. Melatonin is the body's most powerful antioxidant, and it's also your most potent endogenous anti-cancer molecule. And light flicker sucks because it can cause neurological issues like headaches, migraines, and even photosensitive epilepsy. And if you want to know if you've got flicker, you can easily test the flicker of your bulbs by shooting a short slow-motion video. If, when you watch it back, the light flashes on and off, you've got flicker. Not good, but fixable. Lucky for us, our homies over at Blue Blocks made some bulbs that only emit red light. So zero blue, green, yellow, or orange light, just pure red, which is optimal for melatonin production, and their bulbs don't flicker. Additionally, the Lumi sleep bulbs do not run on Wi-Fi or Bluetooth, which means very low EMF readings, if any at all. These bulbs are just badass. They did it right. I use them strategically all over our house, mostly in table lamps, since light source positioning is also important. Think of your nighttime lighting as a campfire, warm light at eye level, not overhead, if possible. This is what we've evolved to do. So if you're ready to ditch your blue light, get over to blueblocks.com lifestylist and use the coupon code lifestylist to save 15%. That's B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com slash lifestylist. And the code is also lifestylist. I forget sometimes, because uh, it was long ago and it wasn't that long, but I was um, given antidepressants, something I think it was called Effexor. 
it's funny thinking back. I, so I go to, I go to a shrink. I'm just, I'm newly sober. I'm just a fucking train wreck. <laughs> it's like so damaged, man. Poor, poor little Lukey, man. I was, I was hurting. So I go in there. I'm like, yeah, I got these racing thoughts. I am, you know, angry at everyone. I'm just, I mean, I didn't even know what anxiety or depression was, but basically walked in. I was like, I'm fucking crazy. And so they gave me this um, effexor and I started taking it and I don't even remember if it helped those symptoms or not. I think I just really had like untreated alcoholism and I hadn't, I didn't have the kind of help that I later did in within the 12 steps um, to just identify like the illness of the mind that is a sober uh, alcoholic or addict that has not healed yet. But anyway, they gave me these pills, dude. And I will say they were great for sex. <laughs> that was really? Like, yeah. which, which is... At the time, the doctor said, I'm just going to warn you, you might become impotent. And I was like, anything's better than crazy like I am now. But yeah, it was awesome for sex for me, actually. That's the one thing I remember, like prolonged sexual experiences that were awesome. Wow. Yeah, crazy. Un unexpected. But the addictive piece, dude, I was, I was addicted to heroin, right? I mean, in a lot of other things, but that was like acute physical addiction you don't have it for so many hours you start getting real sick and really you know depressed and stuff it's like opiate withdrawals um people have asked me what it's like it's like it's like having a combination of suicidal depression and the worst flu you've ever had in your life at the same time knowing that if you just had a little morsel of this one thing that it would all go away and you would feel amazing you know which makes it even more torturous it's just the worst ever i would highly advise people to not do heroin yeah just yeah. bad idea yeah there's a sweet spot in the beginning i'm not gonna lie people do it for a reason but that sweet spot goes away quickly anyway i run out of these effects or pills and i i'm freaking out man i was worse when I ran out of them when I was, when I first started taking them. Right. And then, so I found myself like, you know, calling the office and I couldn't get over there and they would literally like, and this is like a shrink in century city, $400 an hour. This isn't like, you know, some shady doctor, this is a legit psychiatrist. And they would like leave them, you know, behind the mailbox in the front of the medical building. And I'd go over there in the middle of the night and get them I'm like, oh, okay. You know, like if it was a whole thing. And I remember thinking, I didn't get sober to live like this, man. Nah. Like this is what I was doing before. Only I don't even get the feel good part of it. albeit you know, how fleeting that was most of the time. So yeah, not to tell anyone like quit your meds, but I had to wean off and it was a whole thing. It was horrible. It was a horrible experience. Oh, it's terrible. Uh, but yeah, and you some know, people have been on it for 20 years, for 30 years, oh, man. right? And they haven't gotten better. Maybe they get better for a little bit and then they go back. And so what we've, what we've experienced, I mean, having built the course that I did four years ago, we've probably had 3000 to 4,000 students who have gone through it. And I would say probably 30% to 40% of folks who go through it is specifically for this reason because oh, wow. nothing else has been working they really want to get off their meds and again like you said this isn't recommending or advising that you get off your meds in fact i would say if this is something that someone is listening to and they're really interested in microdosing we have a directory of therapists and clinicians at third wave where you can get connected to a psychiatrist or something like yeah. that who you who can actually help you get off your meds because yeah the other thing is most psychiatrists don't know shit about psychedelics and microdosing right so they are just still within that medical pharmaceutical paradigm mm -hmm. and so they're just prescribing what they know to prescribe so you also have to find a clinician who knows 
about microdosing and psychedelics. Well and said. And, all, and also in, in the Western medicine paradigm, it's all about symptomatic relief. I mean, generally speaking, I'm sure there are exceptions rather than like root cause, right? So if the root cause of my anxiety or depression is damage done to my brain by past traumatic experiences and years and years of negative thought patterns and my brain's been wired into this negativity bias, right? It's kind of how I look at the way I used to think. I just, I would walk in a room, I'm just using like a trite example, but I would walk in a room and immediately just find everything wrong. You know what I mean? But that's how I viewed everything right? Walk in and, you know, there's a little chip in the paint on the wall. And I'm like, who painted this place? You know, meanwhile, I'm in a palace or something, right? I mean, just metaphorically speaking, but to take the antidepressants like I did, I mean, I guess I got some relief of symptoms, but certainly didn't heal any of the underlying causes that were, you know, manifesting as suicidal ideas and depression and just gnarly, gnarly panic attacks and anxiety. I mean, that didn't stop that, but it sounds like um, if microdosing is done in a supervised kind of legitimate way that you're going after the root cause. I always think of it as kind of I mean, even micro and microdosing. It's sort of like the medicines are going in and it's like they're healing my brain. I mean, there's well, they no, have an intuitive intelligence themselves. Is that what it is? Where it's like you have to trust that process. Right. Which is why we often say, like, don't just take a single microdose and expect miracles to happen. This is going to be something that you have to commit to for at least a month, mm-hmm. two or three times a week. And the it, it, it is medicine. So what it's doing, we haven't fully been able to clinch onto. But like I said, it's anti-inflammatory. It helps with neurogenesis. And the other thing that we teach is like microdosing is not a magic pill, just like psychedelics are not a panacea. Right. They require sort of a... They were they require an ability to be proactive in what it is that you want in life. And yeah. that means that as you're microdosing, it's also worth journaling, meditating. You know, a lot of people start microdosing and they start changing their diet, they start exercising more, their sleep improves, right? So there seems to be this holistic effect. But it can't just be a reliance on this thing's gonna fix me. Right, right. What this thing is gonna do is it's gonna open up a capacity for you to have more energy. It's gonna open up a capacity for you to be more creative. It's gonna open up a capacity for you to be more proactive, but you still have to do it. Right. And it's also true of high doses for psychedelics, right? Yeah. There will be a lot yeah. of people. I'm sure you've been privy to this just like I have. There are a lot of people who have been doing ayahuasca for 22 years. They've been in hundreds of ceremonies and not much has tangibly changed in their lives over the last 10 to 15 years. I'm so glad you right. mentioned that. And this is the, the naivete that I've had to, um, to kind of process is not to toot my own horn at all, but prior to intentionally using psychedelics, I did nothing but work on myself for 22 years. I mean, I was obsessed with getting better, going to India, learning to meditate, all, mm-hmm. all every self-help book. I mean, I used to listen to, I mean, it was cassettes in the beginning, then it was CDs, then it was MP3s, you know, like Wayne Dyer, Deepak Chopra. Um, just, Tony Robbins. Yeah, uh, I, know, I got into him later. You did, okay. But just like spiritual books and audiobooks, And then later on, um, my favorite teacher, David Hawkins and... I, would I just, love David Hawkins. Yeah. Letting go. Uh, all of them, dude. Oh, man. All of them. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. I was, I'm going to digress. Okay. Totally go off the rails because why not? I feel like we're it. on a podcast. So <laughs> a couple of years ago, a doctor gave me some uh, ketamine lozenges. Yeah. And they're 
they're like 300 milligrams. They're, oh, okay. they're strong. And I've never taken a whole one. Um, thankfully, actually, no, I did one time. That's a whole other story. <laughs> but I was, I was alluding to this earlier. My, my favorite kind of verbal meme now is like these edibles ain't shit. You know, when you kind of like macroed by accident, anyway, last night I was too energized. I went to bed like at 11. I thought, Ooh, I had this idea. I'll just take like a tiny little piece of uh, ketamine and, and melt it under my tongue. And I did that. I did a couple brain tap, like manifestation sessions. They're 20 minutes each. And I'm like, these edibles ain't shit. So I took an equal little piece. So by now I've probably taken half the thing, which cumulatively would be around 150 milligrams. And then just went into a really deep and beautiful solo little ketamine journey, listening to David Hawkins and specifically listen. And I was guided to listen to um, one of his, it's like a audio program called love. And it was the last talk he gave in 2011 at which I was present. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was really, so I was there in the room and I had this whole totally unexpected, just beautiful transformative journey last night where I just, oh man, just went into just the depth of love. And it was, it was profound. I mean, even today I had, I got up and integrated with, with Allison, um, mm. who I think you've met actually. She said she'd met you at an apple orchard. Yeah. She said, yeah, you remember, she's like, he randomly. probably won't remember. Oh, I remember Allison. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. She's, she's hard, hard to hard forget. To forget. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, so I got up and I was like, I think I kind of need to integrate. And we went through a really beautiful process. Um, but that was, you know, that was one of those times where it's like, it, was, it wasn't really intentional, actually. I, right. I didn't like have set and setting. I mean, my house is set and setting, but it wasn't like a ceremony per se, but it ended up being um, just incredible, you know, just a really, really unexpected um, launch pad into a great day today. Um, but I totally forgot what I was talking about before that. Well, I, we were talking... I digressed uh, myself out of a really, uh, what I felt like was an important point. It was... Well, I want to make one point and then I'll yeah, okay, loop us back into the <laughs> point you, that we were going to make. So I think part of the reason that's the case for you is because... Oh, I know what I was talking about. Go ahead. Go ahead. Is Part of the reason yeah. that's the case for you, right? You can take a little bit of ketamine and then have this beautiful journey is because you're very skilled now at working with these medicines, right? You've done ayahuasca. You've done 5-MeO. You've microdosed. You've done higher doses of psilocybin and MDA. So you have a really sort of rich context about even if it's a random... Wednesday night with a ketamine lozenge, there's still sort of this intuitive ability for you to have that be productive and tangible and then integrate the next day. And I think what's often the case with a lot of people is they might do a lot of psychedelics, right? Because this is what we were getting yes, to. Exactly. They, they might drink a lot of ayahuasca, but it's actually more of an escape or a disassociation. Some people would call it spiritual bypassing rather right. than actually going into these shadow elements of who they are and facing them, right? And actually healing them, so to say. Thank you for having the wherewithal to bring us back there. What I was um, wanting to say was, you know, there's 22 years of really deep work. And I'm not saying like, oh, I do medicine better than other people. I don't want anyone to misconstrue what I'm about to say as that. But I feel as though I had a really solid kind of spiritual practice. I've been meditating for 22 years, pretty much every day. I mean, especially the 10 years prior to that, doing all the things. And so when I started experimenting in the medicine space, it's like the journeys aren't random. Mm -hmm. It's like I get in there and I know what's happening, A, and B, I think, because of some of the experiences I have in my past of using drugs very unconsciously as a means to just numb the pain of being me, 
um, I'm able to handle pretty deep experiences and not freak out. Like last night, for example, I mean, it's pretty deep and unexpected. And there were moments where I was like, Oh, am I all right here? And, and you breathe through it. Yeah. And I, you've trained and I breathe through it. And, mm-hmm. but you know, I also knew like, I'm not just going to lay there and listen to Pink Floyd or something. I mean, not that that would be a wrong way to do it, but as I started to feel that the medicine was stronger, I was like, Ooh, what can I imprint right now? Like, what can mm-hmm. I integrate? And it was like, who's my favorite teacher, David Hawkins. What's one of my favorite talks, the one that I, at which I was present. And then it's like the whole thing was guided by the unseen hand. That was exactly the recording I needed to listen to. Mm-hmm. And I heard it in a completely different way. And I, it, it was so beautiful in that even in the experience and also today in integrating, I was like, Oh my God, that was 10 years ago. And how much progress I've made in mm. my spiritual evolution and how much grace I've had and how much help I've had to transform so dramatically from the man I really, the boy I was even 10 years ago in so many ways, you know, and to your point of, you know, meeting people that work with medicine a lot, I was very naive to this because when I went into this game, I was like boots on the ground doing the shadow work, doing the real shit. Like I'm not a spiritual bypasser. I want to get to the core wound. Like take me there. Let's do this shit. Cause I want to move on. Right? right. And I've had to learn. And especially this has been part of my discernment um, in the process of choosing with whom I'm going to participate in ceremony. Who's leading it. What's the deal. Um, Allison's, you know, got a lot more built-in discernment, I think, in that realm, being a shaman herself and whatnot. But I was shocked when I started to meet people that even serve medicine and they're, and this is not a judgment, it's an observation of a seeming reality that their moral character is very faulty. Right. Right. I mean, just out of integrity right. and people that are super shadowy and shady, right. but have done a lot of medicine. And I'm, I'm over here scratching my head, like... I don't know, how could you do ayahuasca 20 times and still be like a manipulative or dishonest or coercive, creepy person? You know, it's like, how could that not elevate your consciousness? But to your point, this is, I think, really the where the rubber meets the road is, is having a framework and, you know, spiritual truths or principles that one lives by, like having some code of ethics right. and moral character and moral fortitude that you've had to actually spend the time working and then ride the wave of these peak experiences on top of that seems like a, a much more uh, productive and safe way to explore these realms, you know, not just because that's the way I've done it. It's just, I'm seeing the results and I see other people that have done more medicine than me and they don't seem to have the same results, you know? And again, it's not a judgment. It's not like a higher level of consciousness is better than a lower one. It's just contrast. It's just different, right? It's like, I like chocolate and vanilla, right? But yeah, anyway. So to, to those listening, like, be careful who you go sit with. Because I've heard some really, you know, secondhand stories of like weird shit happening with people who are like medicine people. And I've heard firsthand stories, you know, many firsthand stories. And I think this speaks to one of the biggest concerns of even the growth of interest in psychedelics is who do I go sit with? How do I know that I can trust that person? What medicines might I do with that person? Right? Because it's still a little bit of the wild, wild west until this becomes fully legal. There are so many underground practitioners who will refer to themselves as psychedelic coaches or psychedelic guys or psychedelic therapists or shamans or whatever it is. But 
there's no real clear way to vet and verify that in some ways, right? And I think, I think the only way is to like talk to someone who is actually gone that you trust, them. right? Who yeah. Gone and sat like with I don't recommend anyone them. I've sat with unless I've been there. Then I'll I'll vouch for them. Precisely. <laughs> Having had the direct experience myself, but anyone else, I'm like I don't know. And that's like, and so you have some organizations in the space again who are in the clinical medical model who are giving you know, certifications or who are doing trainings because, you know, they want to make sure they have folks who are ready for it. And that doesn't necessarily mean that individual is going to be able to be a great therapist or guide just because they've, you know, completed the MAPS training or completed a training at CIS. I've met plenty of people who have the professional credentials, but who I would never sit in ceremony with, right? So this is a tricky gray area as the psychedelic space grows because the biggest tail risk, so to say, of the growth of interest in psychedelics is when you only have, you know, let's say 10,000 people who are actively doing psychedelics and you have maybe 10 experiences that don't go so well, that's not as big of a deal. But when you have 10 million people who are starting to work with psychedelics and you have 10,000 people who now have had difficult experiences or bad facilitators or sex, weird sexual stuff that happens, because that is often one of the most common things, particularly with women, is they'll go into a space and it'll be with like a creepy... That's so brutal, dude. It is, right? So, (laughs) so, and that's what, that's what I've continued to think about. It's like, so how do we create technology? How do we create education? So that way people know how to be discerning. I got it. We need a Yelp for facilitators. (laughs) But then you have to have legality. Yeah, this is this is really really good stuff to cover because I mean I'm just thinking about the the, pro, the the potential for say you know a woman to be taken advantage of or something under medicine like exactly that is so it's horrific anyway right but like when you're under the influence of powerful psychedelics man it's like you are wide open right very suggestible right? yeah and it, and, and very vulnerable right yeah. when you're in that space i mean like oh the quantum it's so mystical yeah but also it's like your guard is down in the most profound way right and right. so that's i mean i'm very um i don't want to say paranoid it'd be overstating it but i'm extremely cautious about anyone i'm around not just who's serving the medicine but i don't want to be in a room with anyone that has any potential negativity or too much shadow for me to deal with you know what i mean because i'm just i'm already very sensitive person i pick up on on yeah i pick up on a lot but man add like a deep medicine experience to that and it's like i'm just a sponge and it's just too scary to have the potential of any darkness or negative energy uh present at all because you'll take that on potentially it'll seep into you not to mention even the the more supernatural realms of like we could probably get to, I do want to like bring the real this back in. Cause there's some things I want to cover with you and we've been going a while, but you know, when you, when you remove the veil between this world and you know, the infinite other dimensions of reality, just like on this earth plane, there are entities that are malevolent. Well, there are also entities that are malevolent. I would presume in all of these other dimensions. And when we're traveling interdimensionally under the influence of these substances, I don't want to have anything to do with any darkness out there, you know, and that's obviously in shamanic ceremonies and, you know, throughout history, these traditions have been imbued with protecting the entire energetic field of the space and the music and the people there. It's a whole thing, 
you know, it, it's, it could get real gnarly if it's not done mindfully. And it, and that doesn't mean that it can't be difficult or that doesn't mean that, you know, I've, I've sat in ayahuasca ceremonies that are Shipibo. So yeah. it can, it, it, like the, the way the Cuerandero will sing the Icaros, it can put you into the shadow material, but that's your shadow material that you right. are facing. It's different to have other dark, like you're saying, malevolent forces that you're open to. Um, and so anyway, gets to the point of the circle, the ceremony has to have, be tightly held and the facilitators, the guides, the shamans, the healers, um, who are great at what they do know precisely how to do that. Yeah, exactly. I remember the, the first time I sat with ayahuasca afterward, I was chatting with, I mean, I was still kind of in it, but after the depth of the experience had subsided, I went up and started chatting with her and I was just so fascinated with her. I was like, you do this all the time. She's like, yeah, this is my life. I'm like, how do you guys like manage the energetics of it? And she's like, well, you know, we, I've been drinking ayahuasca all day before you guys came in. And I was like, wait, hold up. I was like, you're on it too? Cause dude, they're like helping people out and they're very cognizant and capable. And I'm like on the mat, just like, oh. and she's like, what do you think, dude? Like she goes, how do you think we create the grid? Uh, I was like, oh, you're in the, you're in the, you're the architect of, all yeah, together, the architect no. of the grid. Right. Yeah. And I was like, oh, then I almost thought, how could you not be right? But of course, you know, many facilitators don't use medicine while the others are, but anyway, um, I do want to jump back here a little bit okay. to the microdosing. Okay. Um, and also I want to let everyone know it's probably like 10 o'clock. I know. <laughs> I knew this is going to be go till 10 o'clock. I knew this is going to be a good conversation because <laughs> yeah. it's, you know, so much and, and I just love what you're doing. You're such a fun Thanks. dude. Um, Thanks, but, uh, and also people can find the show notes for this at lukestory.com slash third wave. Cause we're probably going to talk about some practical things right here that you want to, you want to look up and go to your site and we might reference other people. So all the show notes, lukestory.com third wave, click on them on your podcast app. If you can't remember that. Um, but is that a thing now you can click it yeah, on, yeah. on the podcast yeah app? all the links are in in the pod most like on uh overcast and the apple podcast app yeah you can click on the links oh i'm behind okay mm -hmm. I gotta, yeah gotta do that. so i just put right. everything behind one hyperlink lukestory.com slash third wave so that they can just get access to them all because people ask what was that thing you said but uh you know and i'm that way when i listen to podcasts i'm like rewind rewind wait what and i write it down it's like it's annoying so i just like everything to be clickable yeah. um but i do want to just kind of sum up the microdosing thing so uh you mentioned kind of the the frequency with psilocybin with lsd um for people to be able to contextualize it when it comes to psilocybin for like a kind of hero's journey dose or a macro dose we're looking at like three and a half grams to maybe five grams or something like that right, right. so to give people an understanding when you're talking about 100 to 200 milligrams that's like one or two tenths of a gram yeah which is minuscule, minuscule. compared to the psychoactive correct and then with lsd you mentioned 10 micrograms to 15 micrograms a whole hit of acid being 100, 100 right so if yeah. you take a true microdose imperceivable dose of um uh, of LSD, you're taking um, one tenth. Would that be mm -hmm. one tenth? About one tenth. Okay, one tenth yeah. of a hit of acid. Yeah. Um, what about uh, San Pedro? Because when I took San Pedro, which has only been once, and it was phenomenal. Uh -huh. um, I mean, I don't know how it was like two 
massive um, tablespoons. And then a couple hours later, a couple, I mean, it was, I don't know, I felt like it was a lot of material. Yeah. Um, if one is using that in a sub-perceptual um, dose, what, what's uh, a San Pedro microdose look like? That's a great question that I don't know the answer Let's of, find off out. the top of my head. And I want to get some. <laughs> we, do, we do have, you can go to your local Home Depot and, and get San Pedro that oh, way that's if right. you want, right? You can grow it, but you just can't eat it yeah. legally, right? But we have a guide to microdosing San Pedro on Third Wave, so we can link to that in the show okay, notes, cool. and that'll have all the... I think know, like, yeah, I'm going to tell people just go to, I mean, your site has everything. I was on there today and I'm like, damn, bro, the content on there is super solid. Kudos to that. Uh, I wanted to ask you about something with microdosing. Have you microdosed Kana? I have not. K-A-N-N-A. I know of Kana, but I've not microdosed it. I'm going to give my friend, uh, my friends now, uh, the partners, Ryan and Phoebe, a plug. They have a company oh, called- I love uh, Ryan and Phoebe. You know them? Oh yeah. Hearthstone, Hearthstone Collective. Collective. Yeah. yeah. And they just uh, put out a product, which is, you know, it's like, some other um, adaptogenic herbs yep. in a capsule mm-hmm. with uh, with Kana, dude, incredible. Oh, like mood booster, nootropic, completely rad, awesome. I've had it with psilocybin before, uh-huh. and it do- it's a real heart opener. Yes, I think Kana's from South Africa. It is, and it's legal here in yeah. the states. So yeah, it's super a cool. Really great heart opener. For- super cool. I know. And a couple times I've done a full journey dose of it, and it. I mean, it can be strong, son. Really? Yeah, I liken it to. I don't. I don't enjoy MDMA. I don't know why they call it ecstasy. I think that's. It makes me feel like shit. I'm not into it. Uh, I don't know. Call me crazy. I've been to like small gatherings where, and they're doing like maps, like legit sure. pharmaceutical pure mdma and i'm like oh maybe it'll be different this time i'm like no i hate this stuff ah. uh, but there there are like sl- there's the slivers of like moments where i'm like ooh, this feels nice but then it goes away and i get all moody and weird kana is like really strong mdma without any like destabilizing mood it's like a very solid heart opening without a lot of fluctuation it's just full-on until it's not I think that's the thing with MDMA. It's just like, yeah. I'm like, God, really? Like how many hours am I going to lay here trying, trying to, to go sleep? To bed yeah. You're like, you're like grinding your jaw. Yeah. And... I think it kind of, it reminds me of crystal meth in that way. And I guess it, uh, it, it for those, some of those molecules need a bit of a amphetamine to kind of activate it and make it work as I understand it. Um, and so maybe that's what it is, but I always hated crystal meth. I still did it, but I didn't like it. I just did it because I had to do something. Um, so, the Kana, the Kana, Hearthstone Collective, highly yeah. recommended. We'll link to that in the show notes. And then, have you ever heard of anyone like microdosing MDMA or 2CB or any of these other more novel substances? So, what we usually say is do not microdose MDMA because MDMA, if done often, can create neurotoxicity and it also can create issues with your heart valve, uh, the, the 2B or something, H2B heart valve. And so, we say if you're looking to work with MDMA, keep it limited to these higher dose sessions, you know, hundred to 120 milligrams within a container that's intentional, but do not microdose with it because it's also slightly addictive. It's the same with ketamine. There are a lot more people now microdosing ketamine. And I, I would hesitate to support that in any way because ketamine can also be addictive. And so if you start taking these low doses of ketamine consistently, you might become somewhat reliant on it. Um, you know, the classic psychedelics, LSD, psilocybin, San Pedro, Iboga, ayahuasca, DMT, even I've microdosed uh, DMT before, NN, DMT, not 5-MeO, but NN. 
all of them are anti-addictive, so you can't become physically dependent. That's not the case with ketamine and MDMA. Thank you for issuing that that warning because someone was telling me the other day, I was like, yeah, I've had some ketamine in my drawer. Just forget about it. It's not really a thing, you know? Um, and I've also had the nasal sprays and they were like, oh man, so many people in Austin are like addicted to ketamine. They, they have the spray, you know, the nasal spray in their pocket and they're at a party. I'm like, ew, <laughs> like, this is no offense, but I can't imagine trying to recreationally or socially use ketamine. That is the weirdest thing to me. It's like a late night 2 a.m. thing I don't if, if get you're it. out, but definitely don't be drinking alcohol if you're also doing ketamine. I like, don't get it. But, I, you know, so I didn't know that, but I've talked about it favorably uh, before on the show. Like, And in higher doses, it's great. Like I've done yeah. ketamine um, lozenges. I've done ketamine rectally for body work phenomenal like so suppositories good. yeah suppos yeah. well it's kind of like a goop oh, you okay. know, a syringe that you oh okay got it but um but all the same like ketamine can be really great but again it's like once one to two times a month microdosing ketamine i do i i, I can't support yeah i i anyway. think that would be a bad idea perhaps now more than ever humanity is under an incredible amount of stress hell even when the world's not this insane normal life can be stressful and aside from just being uncomfortable, stress can take a toll on your body, raising your blood pressure, making it harder to sleep, draining you of vital energy, and making you more irritable. That's why I strongly recommend that you supplement with magnesium daily. A shocking 75% of people are magnesium deficient. That number might be even higher among business owners and C-level professionals. That's because stress depletes magnesium levels. And this can, of course, trigger a vicious cycle of rising stress and severe magnesium deficiency. This magnesium stuff is so important that it's involved in over 300 chemical processes inside your body. It's a critical mineral. Having enough magnesium can give you better sleep, more energy, healthy blood pressure, less irritability, a calmer mood, stronger bones, reduced muscle cramping, and even fewer migraines. Sounds awesome, right? Well, to experience these health benefits, you have to get the right kinds of magnesium, and most synthetic magnesium supplements just don't cut it. That's why I recommend Magnesium Breakthrough by Bioptimizers. It's the only organic, full-spectrum magnesium supplement that includes seven unique forms of magnesium for stress relief and better sleep all in one bottle. This stuff's incredible, and I actually took one this morning before I left the house. I was thinking about that as I record these ads. I'm like, okay, when did I use it last? Yep, it was today and almost every day. So for an exclusive offer for you Lifestylist Podcast listeners, go to magbreakthrough.com slash Luke and use the code Luke10 at checkout to save 10% off and get free shipping. That's magbreakthrough.com slash Luke and use the code Luke10. Okay, well, I think that covers that, except the elephant in the room of all questions. And this is the number one question I get from people about this is like, where can I get this stuff? The legality is so tricky. And some people like you and I have some ideas on how that could be facilitated, but I'm not going to answer someone's Instagram DM and be like, here's my guy's number to get some microdose mushroom. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just weird. And I'm like, I don't want to give people my personal number per se either. No. If, if I look at their profile, I'm like, they're not a narc. But still, like, I don't necessarily want to open up a communication line with with uh, someone that I don't know, especially around that. So, I mean, what's the deal with, like, how do people get access when they want to intentionally um, play around with microdosing? So this is the biggest problem that we have at Third Wave as well in terms of, like, 
people reaching out and being like, Hey, I really want to start microdosing or I want to work with these compounds, but like, I can't source them. I can't get them. It's obviously different for you and I, because our circles and the people that we run with, yeah, we hang around you know, a bunch it's, of it's, yeah, it's pretty easy to get, but for the average everyday person who's <laughs> new to this space, it's tricky. So what we've done at third wave is we um, were probably by time this podcast is live, we will have a sourcing guide that is available on our website. So we have a free one right now. We'll roll out a much more comprehensive one that helps people to navigate if they want to source or if they're going to source, how to do so safely and how to make sure that they're getting the right compounds or the right substances to microdose with. So, you know, just briefly off the top of my head, LSD, regular LSD is very difficult to come by, but there's a compound called 1P LSD that is a precursor to LSD. So if you take 1P LSD, your body turns it into LSD. Because it's a new compound, you can buy it with cryptocurrency in Canada. Oh, wow. So you can actually put it in an order. It's for research purposes only, but they will ship it to your home. So for LSD, that's typically the direction that we will point for psilocybin. What we have coming out at Third Wave is we're selling out a grow kit and a grow course. So um, to make it much more easy and accessible for, for people to grow their own mushrooms. So we have this little grow kit. It comes in, you spray some water on it, put in the spores, you know, put it in a closet, check it, make sure no mold gets in. And within six weeks, you'll have a mushroom flush and you can microdose with those mushrooms. And we also, it comes with a course to teach you actually how to use Dude, amazing. the grow kit to how to do it. So that amazing. makes it more accessible. If any listeners are in Canada, it's really easy nowadays to find suppliers in Canada. So there's probably like 20 different microdosing suppliers that are out of Vancouver. So you can actually just purchase it online and they'll ship it to your home. Also in the States that's starting to happen, but it's not quite there yet. But there are a lot of you know companies in Venice or companies in Austin that are starting to be more public about it. And again, we outline a lot of this context and details in that sourcing guide we put together. I think those are the best places to start with LSD and psilocybin. MDMA, I'm not going to get too much into just because it's, it's MDMA. Um, but with ketamine, ketamine is legal, right? It's medically available. And so if people are listening to this podcast and they're struggling with depression or they're struggling with anxiety, or maybe they have PTSD, um, or just things aren't going so well for them now, it's pretty easy to find a practitioner, like a nurse practitioner who will mm -hmm. prescribe you ketamine either within a clinical format or as a nasal spray. And my suggestion to anyone who's interested in ketamine would be to make sure that you don't, you're not the guy at the party who's just squirting ketamine up your nose at 1 a.m., um, but instead approach ketamine like you would any other psychedelic medicine do it intentionally, do it with a playlist, do it with a coach or a guide, someone who can help you navigate that yeah. landscape. <laughs> I'm going to interject. Important. The playlist with ketamine is really important. Oh my gosh. Niels Fromm is my I had, favorite. I had one, one time, the time that I, I kind of accidentally took 300 milligrams, which is not, I mean, unheard of, but it was, I didn't know. It was in the lozenge, it dissolved quickly, et cetera. But yeah, I just, I went, like on, the... I went on Spotify and just picked it's like a ketamine playlist. Really? And I was like, this will be good. <laughs> Went into the K-hole. And then it was all like electronic music, which is not my vibe. I like listening yeah. to like shamanic music and just very heart centered, you know, like that type of prongy? thing. It's prongy uh, your vibe? Or? Uh, I've not listened to that much prongy. No. I listen to like Native American, you know, peyote chants and Icaros uh, okay. and this kind of stuff, you know, yeah. like the Devi prayer. That would be like the quintessential. Gotcha. 
right. journey music for me. Anyway, I put on this ketamine. It's like, you know, just not even club music, just the weirdest music. And that actually kind of made it, it, it colored the experience a bit darkly. Yeah. You know, because it was just so inorganic and mechanical and weird. And oh, God. So, playlist crucial. My recommendation is Niels Fromm. Niels Fromm. Okay. Niels Fromm is phenomenal. He's a Danish, I think, Danish musician. Comp- I've heard of composition. This. Yeah. Dude, listen to all melody. Okay. With ketamine next time on okay. the lozenge, you will. Okay. You will be blown away. Done it's deal. Phenomenal. Uh, okay. That's really great information. I think that's a very sane uh, approach and very resourceful, the stuff that you just recommended. Now, for macro journeys, um, and then we'll, you know, we'll wrap it up. I know we still have another podcast to do, but I'm just having so much fun. Um, for macro journeys, obviously the legality is an issue and also finding qualified, safe facilitator, shaman, et cetera. So psychedelic tourism is now huge. You mentioned that you have, uh, something like this going in the Netherlands. Um, I, I co-founded something like this. Yeah. yeah. So and I know you have a directory on your site, so I don't, you don't need to list like the 30 spots, but uh, what's kind of happening in the, the psychedelic tourism space and retreats and, and also where do you see that going? What might someone want to look for or look to avoid if they're seeking to you know, leave the country they're in in order to find something like this? So there are a number of places, you know, jurisdictions where this is legal. So psilocybin is legal in the Netherlands. It's legal in Jamaica. Those are the two major ones. So we started synthesis in the Netherlands. Retreats are on and off um, just because of the COVID situation over there. Europe is a clusterfuck. So it's a little tricky to navigate that, but there are many other retreat centers in Jamaica. Um, And again, we have a list of those in the directory. There's probably three to five that are good. Um, There's also a few in Mexico as well. There's a lot of ayahuasca retreats in Costa Rica and in Peru and Brazil, Colombia, Bolivia, right? I think the one that I would highly recommend uh, is Soltara in Costa Rica. I love Soltara as well as the Temple of the Way of Light in Peru. And that's another really good one uh, that uses the Shipibo tradition. And I would say the, the, the thing to look for or some of the things to look for if, if exploring potentially going to a retreat center is, first of all, asking what's your intention in going to the retreat center. If you're someone who has PTSD, clinical depression, if you're struggling with addiction, alcoholism, any of that, you want to make sure that you pick a retreat center that is able to handle that. There are some retreat centers that are just coaches and facilitators, but they don't have clinical support. And if you need clinical support, you want to go to a retreat center that offers that, that has a nurse or a physician or some other medical person on staff just to ensure that you are fully supported. Because again, with deep trauma and ayahuasca, it can get messy. You know, there's some real shit that can come up and you want to make sure that <laughs> that you're being held and supported by by a team and a group of people who have done this for a long time. And I would say that's the second thing to look for is longevity, who has been doing this for a considerable period of time, who really knows what they're doing. Um, 
it's interesting because in in the the the, the scope of things, a lot of these retreat centers have not been open that long mm-hmm. because this is still fairly new. Like we started Synthesis in 2018, so just over three and a half years ago. Soltara has only been going for maybe two to three years. Temple the Way of Light a little longer, maybe 10 years or so. So I think look at longevity. How long has this been around? Is this just a new retreat that came on the scene or have they been doing this for at least three to four years. The retreat center that you attend, you don't necessarily want it to be their first go around. You want them to have some, <laughs> some yeah. experience, you know, before, I think you, that before you go there. Also with even outside of retreat centers, something that's been meaningful to me, like um, with uh, Bufo, for example, is asking the facilitators, like, how many times have you done this? Right. right. It's because it's maybe, maybe something hasn't been around for that many years or someone hasn't been practicing for that many years. They discovered it three years ago, but they might've served 4,000 people by now, especially with Bufo because it's so short acting. Right. Right. So that, that's always a good indicator to me, you know, and someone's like, Oh, about 600 times. I'm like, okay, cool. Chances are if shit goes sideways, you're going to understand how to handle totally. it and I'm going to be safe. And, and you know, that, the energy grid is going to be clean and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. And then the last thing would be group size, you know, what, and, and sort of group type, what, who is attracted to these retreat centers? If you're someone who you don't want to deal with deep clinical trauma, but you're interested in going to a retreat for spiritual exploration, to connect with other people for, you know, awareness, evolution, you don't want to go to a retreat where most of the people are dealing with deep clinical issues are going to have a really hard time. That's a good point. Right. So you want Mm -hmm. to make sure that you're going to an experience where, um, where you connect with the sort of vibe that's happening and that that experience isn't done with like a hundred other people. There are a couple of retreat centers, one of which you mentioned before that's trying, that's doing ayahuasca with like 80 to a hundred people at once. And that can get very messy very quick. And so my recommendation for folks is if you're looking to attend a retreat, find a retreat center that's doing experiences for people where it's like 15 to maybe at the most 25 to 30 people, anything above that. And it's hard to hold a really tight container um, for that experience. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think, um, yeah, the first four ayahuasca ceremonies I was in, there was tons of people and people have asked me about that too. Like, oh, didn't that suck? Especially like really experienced folks that don't prefer it that way. Right. And honestly, I'm like, I didn't even know there was anyone else there. You know what I mean? Like I was in process, man. Like there could have been 2000 people and that didn't matter, you know, but uh, to some people I'm sure it does. But I, I think that's really good too, is kind of like developing your peer group too, yeah. in terms of like, you know, as you have these experiences, sometimes the bonds that are created are immediate and they're deep and they're, they're valid and beautiful. Um, I remember sitting in peyote the first couple of times and, um, you know, we're in a teepee on the desert and I only knew one or two people. I was with Allison and she had sat with the facilitators many times. And it was a, it was a big group. It was probably like 50 people. And I was kind of like, oh, I don't know, like don't know these people, you know, by the end of the first 24 hour period in the sharing circle, I'm like, I mean, there were no newbies in the room. You know what I mean? I mean, everyone's integration share was just so mind-blowing and profound. I'm like, where the fuck have you people been my whole life? I mean, yeah. they were very experienced, generally speaking. Sure. And that was um, that was in contrast to the first time in Costa Rica. I mean, there's little old ladies there. There was 
so many people that had never, I'm going to talk to this one person. They're like, I've never even drank a beer or smoked weed. And I'm like, uh, you're about to do ayahuasca, (laughs) but they had an incredible experience, you know? But I I think for me, like being in the field of people that are a bit more evolved with the process is, has been helpful. Um, and just, I don't know, the collective consciousness of the group also kind of serves my needs Mm -hmm. and wants too. like, we're really going somewhere here. People aren't just kind of wanting to see some visuals and escape like they're there to do work and to really go deep you know so that's a really good point that's a huge appeal of going to a retreat is the community and the connections that you make i mean a lot of folks can just especially now do this alone at home with an eye mask and a playlist but i think a huge appeal of going abroad and doing a retreat is the people that you meet and the stories that you come away with yeah especially for people that um don't have the luxury of having a social circle where they live of like-minded people right kind of like i I posted some a couple days ago about like finding your soul tribe or something and i got dms that were like god i wish i could find these people where i live because i'm in des moines or wherever you know and i'm like they're there i don't i've never been to des moines but you know i'm just picturing a city cornfields yeah something like that you know and so uh yeah, so that's that's a that's a really good point is is finding your tribe and and on the microdosing source locating that's typically what I tell people is like start going to breathwork classes. That's what we and, say as well. Yeah, you know, find the local like ice bath and sauna, red light biohacking center. You're gonna find people that are kind of into the same stuff. And well, and there's a lot of just local psychedelic societies as well now. And oh, in, that's cool in L.A. or New York or in wherever, right? Groups who are doing weekly or monthly talks or meetups or events around psychedelics as well. So that's oh. also like your biggest urban city, just type in acts psychedelic society. And there's very likely <laughs> that reminds that. me, I went to see the, uh, I think it's called fantastic fungi movie, which Great is phenomenal. I went, I went to it? see it in the theater in Pasadena and yeah. uh, on the way out, some guys like, and hands me a card and it's like interested in microdosing call this number yeah, <laughs> so yeah, I'm like, yeah. go see that movie you know the guy out front will probably track you down exactly uh man dude i i, I mean we've not never covered all i want to cover but um i think in closing i would like to uh, just touch on something you mentioned earlier and that was you know the fact that so many of these traditions and medicines have come out of places in the world where the indigenous peoples there have been um, exploited, eradicated, harmed, all the things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how can people like us or or the movement as a whole uh, support these communities and help to uphold their traditions without sort of capitalizing on them to their detriment? So indigenous reciprocity. There you go. That's the term you used earlier. Yeah. Right. And it was interesting. I interviewed a guy yesterday, Mark Plotkin, who wrote this book, The Tales of a Shaman's Apprentice. Um, He's like, he was a mentee of Richard Evans Schultes, who was sort of the foremost ethnobotanist in the 30s and 40s and 50s. Oh, interesting. And uh, Mark has been doing this work for a lot of years. He's done ayahuasca like 90 times, a lot of times with cuaranderos in the middle of the rainforest. And we talked about this yesterday because one of his, the main project he's been running is this nonprofit called the, the Amazon Conservation team or something like that. And so I asked him about that, like in terms of indigenous reciprocity, how does that fit into the larger psychedelic Renaissance? And one thing that he said that, that stuck with me is that it's really about what what he, what he said. He said, it's about having, being polite essentially and having manners, Mm. so to say. In Mm -hmm. other words, when you go into someone's home, you show up there as a guest you show up there in service for them. You show up there to be with them. You don't show up there to steal something from their home and go, peace out and say, see ya. 
right? And so I think a lot of indigenous reciprocity is simply having manners and being polite and being in relationship with the people who have been doing this for sometimes for hundreds and thousands of years as part of their lineage. Um, and so that might mean if, if there's someone listening to this who wants to start a company in the psychedelic space or, or who is involved with a company in the psychedelic space or who wants to become a coach or a guide or a facilitator in the psychedelic space, that you actually go and spend time in Peru or spend time in Mexico or spend time with people who are doing this work and have done this work. I think that's a really important element. And I think the other thing is is recognizing that you know, there's a lot of stuff going on in the psychedelic space as it relates to trying to patent psilocybin, for example, and recognizing that going back to the story that we touched on earlier in our conversation about how when I had my first acid experiences, it sort of tapped me into this archaic biological truth of who I am, right? When we have relationships with a mushroom or with ayahuasca or some of these plants of the gods, we're tapping into an intelligence that is ancient, right? And so honoring that and respecting that and having reverence for that and not trying to synthesize the psilocybin out of it and not trying to patent it and corporatize it for profit and shareholder gain, I think keep psychedelics in a medicinal framework and ensure that if you use them, you do so with reverence in ceremony, with preparation, support, integration, Right. And always keeping in mind that part of that healing that psychedelics teach us is being in connection and in a communion with nature. And the people who know how to do that best are those who have been doing this, who are indigenous. And so I think there's something to learn about specifically the healing that we have as Westerners to do in our relationship with nature and that plant medicines and indigenous reciprocity can be central to that. Beautiful. Thank you. Absolutely. Great presentation on that particular <laughs> point. It's exactly what I wanted to hear because I know there's something in there that's that's important and I think that's that's what it is. It's the respect and reverence. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not someone who abides by political correctness. So when terms like cultural appropriation are thrown sure. around a lot, I'm like, eh, what? Like, I I can't like the Rolling Stones because they played Muddy Waters song. You know, it's like there's a fine line between celebrating a culture, mm -hmm. right? And by celebrating it, uh, sometimes it's appropriate and even necessary to adopt part of that culture. And so Muddy Waters probably made tons of money because the Rolling Stone, well, he probably got ripped off by his publisher back in the 50s. Right. But, you know, I found out about Muddy Waters because I like the Rolling Stones or right. Led Zeppelin or whatever, right? I'm using kind of a you know, an inconsequential example of that, but, um, you know, had these um, different cultures not spent those hundreds and thousands of years developing the relationships they had with those medicines, I wouldn't be probably having the experiences I'm having, right? Of just getting, you know, second, third, fourth, fifth hand kind of versions of those ceremonies and things like that. Um, but I think that as long as we're, respectful and reverent and mindful of nature itself and the fact that nature created these humans and put us in different places. And some of us have nestled in in the Amazon or wherever it is and made a thing. And then you have, you know, a, a Euro mutt like myself, whose people came from all over. So I don't have like a, any sort of groundedness to any culture of my own. Right. So I'm making it up right. as I go. And 
sometimes that requires investigating and participating in other cultures. And I don't think there's a crime in that, you know, there's mm. a lot of unification can take place when we start to get the experience of the oneness, you know, mm. and it's, it is really powerful too. I remember at um, Sultara just didn't interview them, but I was really curious about the lives of the Shipibo shaman. It was a couple when I went and, uh, you know, they, they've been married for 25 years and just serving ayahuasca together all the time, (laughs) the whole time, you know, I'm just like, I just want to go inside their head and just see what they see. You know, it's just incredible. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, the, the lineage and, and the way they speak about medicine and spirit, you know, it's like, it's like watching a movie. Like I've seen people talk about things that way, you know, Oh, did you hear the wind or look at that leaf or, you know, a, a spirit animal, appears in these kind of things, you know, and it's like, God, I wish I could have that type of relationship with the natural world and be right. integrated into the cosmos in that way. And how do you learn how to do that? Well, you have to spend time with those people and got to do the things they do mm-hmm. right in your own way. So, yeah. Yeah. So thank you for that. I think it's super important. And, you know, also to just preserve the the land and the life ways of people that didn't choose to have their shit fucked up. <laughs> you know what I mean? No one invited these evil colonizers in to take their resources and their shit and say, Oh, this is, we have this thing called property ownership and now we own this thing. What? Yeah. Like they didn't invite that in, you know? So um, it's a pretty egregious um, trespassing in so many ways. So thank you for ending on a truthful and sentimental note. And uh, that my friend, is it except for my last question? Psych. My last question is: uh, You've taught me and our listeners so much today. Who have been three teachers or teachings that have influenced your life and your work? Tolstoy. Wrote, oh, deep. Wrote a book called "The Kingdom of God Is Within You," mm. which was post Anna Karina and War and Peace, and it was the book and the philosophy that inspired Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., and Nelson Mandela. The whole nonviolent oh, wow. resistance movement of the 20th century. So wow. that. That has been very influential. Um, would say my dad or my parents, even both of them, in terms of the the the, the lessons that they've taught me, the love that they provided for me. Um, so they've been central to my growth, my development, the stability that I have inside of me, and and all of that. And probably. You know, I grew up Christian. I would not consider myself Christian, but still Jesus and the teachings, uh, I think from a Western perspective um, and the truth that he taught and the influence that he has now had, um, whether good or bad, um, I think there's a lot to learn from him as sort of this enlightened figure and person. So I think he as well has been just, because I grew up in the church, I grew up going to, you know, church every Sunday for like four hours and I resisted it a lot, but now I'm able to sort of come back from a much more psychedelic <laughs> unified perspective and see Jesus was the drinking, of those drinking teachings. ergot juice exactly. or something. Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, it's interesting that, you know, a few people have cited him as uh, as an influencer teacher and I, I had the opposite experience in that I was not exposed to any religion of any kind growing yeah. up. And um, some years into my sobriety, a lot of the 12 step movement was kind of grounded in Judeo-Christian principles and biblical, right. you know, uh, truths and things. But 
someone turned me on to this book um, called Sermon on the Mount by Emmett Fox. Mm. Yeah, Emmett Fox is incredible. He's kind of part of the new thought movement, you know, Napoleon Hill, Emmett Fox, uh, uh, okay. kind of after William James, but in that same line of thinking, really mm. interesting stuff like um, scientific Christianity, this kind of thing. And someone gave me the book and I was like, this is the answer to everything. This is incredible. And I didn't know for a while that it even had anything to do with, you know, like I heard of the book, but I didn't even know what the Sermon on the Mount was because I was that unfamiliar. But essentially in that book, what he does is kind of dismantles all of the mythology and all of the dogma of the teachings of the Bible and just puts it in like practical terms that you can apply to your life. And I was like, after reading that, I was like, the Bible's amazing, you know, and when I can actually get the, you know, the juice out of it without all of the fluff kind of, you know? Um, Yeah. yeah, So that was, that was hugely impactful on me. And I think because of that, I would say Jesus, whether that was his name or whatever it was, but the the human that embodied Christ consciousness for that time. um, I mean, I don't know how you get much further than that in the depth of, you know, the message of love. Precisely. So yeah, thanks Jim. Uh, where can people find your websites and stuff? We've mentioned it, but is there anything else you want to turn people onto? The Third Wave. Mm-hmm. So thethirdwave.co. Okay. Um, my personal website, paulaustin.co. We also have a podcast, which um, yeah, buddy, great podcast. can continue into, and that really focuses on psychedelics themselves. And then yeah. we've mentioned the directory a few times. So uh, directory.thethirdwave.co is where we have the listings of retreats and clinics, therapists and coaches. So awesome. What a great contribution. And for those listening, we'll put all that stuff in the show notes. And uh, with that, let's tune in and tune out. Thanks, Luke. Well, hot damn, here we are. We made it through episode 400. Thank you so much for joining Paul and myself for this conversation. This one was really fun. Uh, And at the same time that we recorded this one, we also did an episode of me being a guest on Paul's show, The Third Wave, which is one of my favorite podcasts, incidentally. So this was an incredible day, and I was just so blessed to have the opportunity to sit down with Paul, um, not only in general, but in person here in the studio. I love it when I can catch people when they're passing through uh, Austin, Texas, and we can see, I just said that very, very Texas. When they pass through Austin, Texas, it's rubbing off on me, guys. I'm turning into a Texan. I might just start wearing a big old hat soon and maybe get a Ford F-150 and start running people off the road like they do me. Anyway, I digress. I want to remind you, for those seeking to learn all there is to know about microdosing, Paul's created an incredible and extensive library of microdosing guides. I highly recommend it. Uh, You can find it at lukestory.com slash microdose. On to next week's show. This one, my friends, is a powerhouse. It's episode 401, naturally. It's called Mandate Madness, How to Reclaim Your Sovereignty, with California gubernatorial candidate, Renette Senum, man. And uh, this woman is a true force of nature and a tremendous leader in the current fight for freedom. And um, you know, I, I dip in and out of this somewhat forbidden topic on the show. And um, I just had to have her on. I saw her speak at an event here in Austin, uh, maybe, God, almost a year ago. And I just saw the sparkle in her eye. And I was like, man, this woman is fire. We got to have a talk. Very empowering conversation next week. For those of you that are confused about the nature of uh, mandates and laws and how the politics play into all of this, uh, I went out on a limb a little bit with next week's episode, as I normally just don't delve into politics because I don't feel I'm uh, frankly qualified to do so. And it's not, it's not my lane. You know, this is about building a lifestyle. But when this thing started leaning into 
personal health, freedom, and sovereignty, it really got my attention and continues to do so. So next week's show is a very, really non-conspiratorial, straight down the middle, common sense approach, and also an effort to support her run for governor of California, because God knows y'all need some help out there. Wow. Um, I, I miss you guys. I miss California. I mean, I lived there most of my life and it's such a beautiful state, but man, talk about mismanagement. So hopefully uh, Renette and her supporters like me can help do something about that. And speaking of freedom, if this is one of your personal values and you're interested in my uncensored content, uh, unfortunately, you can only find that in one place and that is my Telegram channel. You can find that at lukestory.com slash telegram. That's lukestory.com slash telegram. Click that link and join me there for some uh, pretty shocking news feeds and memes and all things that I want to say but can't say without completely nuking my company on the um, more communistic, tyrannical, authoritarian social media platforms. There, I said it. Join me at Telegram. And even better, if you want to hang out in person, face to naked face, I'll be speaking at the Paleo Effects Conference here in Austin, April 29th through May 1st. You can find tickets for that event at lukestory.com slash events. Okay, that's it. I'll see you next week where we talk about sovereignty with Renette Senum. Until then, be safe, be well, and be you. <laughs>